The following episode contains explicit material that may be difficult for certain listeners, as one of the films featured has a heavy focus on the Ku Klux Klan and the rape of a child. As mentioned before in this podcast, we respect and believe victims of sexual assault, and we firmly support Black Lives Matter and equity and inclusion for all people of color. Peter Travers of Rolling Stone calls 1994's The Client a high-voltage charge of suspense, action, and humor. Roger Hebert of the Chicago Sun-Times calls 1996's A Time to Kill a skillfully constructed morality play that pushes all the right buttons and arrives at all the right conclusions. And about the Blu-ray 3-pack that also includes the Pelican Brief, Amazon.com reviewer C.A.R. says... Each of these movies has so much to give to the viewer. Kinda like that I can store all three movies in one package. Messes up the alphabetical in the rest of my collection, but I can deal with that issue. I am a movie fanatic and would recommend all three movies to anyone. On this episode of Ruined Childhoods, we decide the fate of Joel Schumacher's adaptations of John Grisham novels, The Client and The Time to Kill. Which one will it be? Greetings, Star Fighters. <laughs> is that Kevin Spacey or is that Tommy Lee Jones? Oh, well, that's uh, any attorney in the state of Louisiana in any. Or Mississippi or uh, Tennessee. Working out of Memphis. I got an office up in Memphis, too. And we're going to (laughs) be we're going to be talking uh, quite a bit about Memphis later on, because we're going to have our uh, our legal consultant, Laura Richardson, who uh, spent some time clerking for a judge in Memphis. Uh, So she's got a lot to say, but we're going to get to her later on. But for right now, we're talking Grisham's baby. Yeah. But before we do, John, any any one more things for us? For Flatliners. 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 The last one we did. Oh, my God. They all blend together at a certain point. (laughs) I don't have anything really to mention about Flatliners, other than as I was reading more and more reviews for for the 1990 version or the 2017 version, it just made me a little sad because people really like to trash on Flatliners. And uh, people seem to acknowledge that, like, yes, it's a really cool idea, but they just don't love the way that it's done. But you just have to celebrate the weirdness of the way that it yeah. was done. It's a it's a gothic. It's a it's like Frankenstein. That's we talked about yeah. it. It it is in the spirit of Frankenstein, and I I like I don't know what people are expecting. But like, look, and it showed off such an impressive cast and, and, you know, it was like, you know, 1990 and the the world was in love with Julia Roberts and Kiefer Sutherland was Hollywood's bad boy. And there was Kevin Bacon. (laughs) So this is, this is our last episode in our month of July, our celebration of the late, great Joel Schumacher. And, um, on the last episode, I can't remember, did I... Talk about the th- one of the themes that I found throughout his movies about the cars that are in it, the automobiles. 
uh, I think we touched on it with with Grandpa's truck from the Lost Boys okay, and, and yes, Kevin Bacon's truck. Yes. Oh, so, so did... right. So I'm uh, watching more falling down. Jo- falling down. Did yeah. we not talk about falling down with that? I I don't think that we touched on falling down. With Where the, the a car major thing. traffic jam is yeah. a huge plot point, and, and the movie yeah, starts in his plus car. Plus, his car is very his, much his reflective of his yeah personality defense so we'll get to the client and a time to kill in a little bit but i also watched a film also featuring uh our podcast's former guest keith coogan the movie cousins uh in which he co-stars with ted dancing isabella rossellini mm-hmm. um sean young sean young it was in that yeah yeah and uh i had never seen cousins i watched it for the first oh. time the other night uh laura joined me she couldn't take her eyes off of it she was like this is such a weird movie but i just can't stop watching it uh <laughs> for anybody who is unfamiliar with cousins i feel like it kind of flew under the radar and isn't talked about much lately but it is it's funny because uh if you read the synopsis online it's usually just like two couples meet at a wedding and decide to wife swap and it's like that is not what it's about i haven't uh, seen it in a long time but no essentially there is a big family wedding and the wife of the son of the groom uh sleeps with the husband of the daughter of the bride and this no, no, is no, no, but- not not the not the son of the groom. It's the uh, nephew of the groom. So they were then cousins. So uh, they sleep together, and it's kind of like a weird situation where like he is a total womanizer, sleeps around all the time, and she is kind of like a free spirit. And their relationship isn't an open relationship, but they've kind of they realize that they're not right for each other. And is that William Peterson, William Peterson, yeah, yeah. Of, and Lo- uh, Lloyd Bridges is CSI. the father. Lloyd Bridges is Ted Danson's father, and he's so good. And he and Keith Coogan have so many amazing scenes together. I really you know, love their relationship. I haven't, I, I haven't seen that movie like since probably it first aired on HBO. Mm-hmm. I remember watching it on and off because I remember Keith Coogan's character had that big camcorder. Yeah, that he I thought was, was so cool. Ted Danson's son, and like he was always uh, making these videos and they always like he made a, a wedding video of that first one oh, and he and catches had, like, doesn't he, he catch like, them well he catches them but also like he splices in footage of like starving kids in africa and things like that and like people gorging themselves on cake and it's oh uh, right amazing that, oh, wow i remember it's so you know what and and you're right and this wasn't um it was based on a french movie uh cousin cousine right and it was released february 1989 so part part of a, a really exceptional year in movies which we are going to talk yeah. about another exceptional year in movies today 1994 oh my god right wow. so <laughs> uh just real quick the only reason why i'm bringing up cousins now is because Yes, it features one of the Joel Schumacher trademarks, which is uh, Ted Danson's character, well, and his son, Mitch, played by Keith Coogan. They live in this weird apartment. It's really eclectic. And right outside of the windows are all these like neon lights and like this neon dragon from like a Chinese restaurant. So there's a lot of like vibrant colors and like popping like reds in the backgrounds of all these shots. And that's very Joel Schumacher. Also Ted Danson's character 
drives this like antique motorcycle with a sidecar and it's the vehicles that he includes for these people plus the it also in contrast to William Peterson's character's uh BMW the movie starts off with him yelling at his daughter about how she can't mess up his leather seats there is no way that that blanket is going in this car Mom! No, 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 not this time. This is a brand new $25,000 BMW 325E5 with leather interior. Tom, it's just a car. Oh, come on, I just armor all the seats. Everything is about how he sells BMWs. He always talks about how he sells BMWs, but he works at a Subaru dealership. And, but he's like, but I, I sell BMWs, like, because maybe a used car comes in there every now and then, or they, they have some BMWs. I don't understand how that quite works. Maybe BMW stands for, for something else when he says it. Nope. It's, they are BMWs, Bavarian Motor Works. He gets into all the nitty gritty. Christ, you will, you will not believe what happened to us. The goddamn car broke down. Where is everybody? Oh, Jesus, I didn't know it was this late. Are you okay? Oh, Tom was just giving me a test drive in his car. He, we lost track of time. Tom sells BMWs. I thought they were Subarus. I understand you're in the market for a new car. We are, aren't we, honey? Your wife and I have been talking about putting a set of wheels under you at a price you can afford. Not just any set of wheels. We're talking about the Bavarian Motor Works. I think a BMW is a little out of our range. Mm. Besides it breaking down all the time. So, yeah, vehicles is a really big one. And that comes into play in uh, in some major ways. In, in the, the client. That we're in, in the client, for sure. Right from the start. Right from the start. And then uh, in A Time to Kill, Sandra Bullock's character and also... Um, Oliver, Platt's, Oliver character. Platt's character. You know, they have these very noticeable cars that they drive. Both of them German convertibles. But also, in, it's also interesting to note, like, the characters that don't have cars, like, Jake doesn't have a car, I don't he, think. No, 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 he does. Uh, at the beginning, he says that his car is, like, in the shop, but oh, he gets right. it back, because uh, remember, he, like, parks it all crazy in front of the office. He has a sob. Oh, yeah, 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 that's right, that's right. He okay, so, so, well, and... It, but also, in A Time to Kill, the pickup truck... Uh, oh yes in the beginning so oh, yes so, so before we get to that dan do you have any one more things from flatliners well geez john but uh no but i'm gonna keep going on this cars thing just because you knew we were having one uh expert guest on today you yeah. didn't realize you're having two because um for those of you new to the program i uh, when i'm not podcasting and not parenting and doing the things that on the honeydew list that my wife gives me I am also a teacher of language arts, a high school teacher in the Seattle area. I teach ninth grade language arts. And one of my big deals, one of my big, uh, and I've been planning for the, for, for the coming school year now. And, uh, which I'll be teaching much in the way that we're having this conversation right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, probably not on Squadcast, probably Zoom, but, uh, <laughs> you're not going to uh, do it on a, on a platform designed for podcast recording. Um, remotely I, depends on the project. I might at sometimes, I mean, a po podcasting is something that I'm looking into having my kids do as an option. Well, we can talk about that. Yeah. That's, that's not for on. now. That's not for now. But, uh, I, one of my big, uh, one of the big ties is the use of cars as symbols in hmm. different, in, in the different novels 
that we read and you know that in in one book they stand you know a car represents someone's status in life so you yeah. have one character who's you know that all the other characters envy them because they drive a nice t-bird and meanwhile like you, you have one book that starts with like you know this crappy old car breaking down in the middle of the desert so huh, okay cars are pretty strong symbols we notice it more in literature because writers tend to you know shine the spotlight on that but it, it, it in film as well and in film based on literature absolutely i uh, and actually if we want to go back even further for joel schumacher he got his start uh, i think one of the first things he wrote was car wash and uh, one of his first uh, movies that he directed was dc cab so he's got cars in the dna <laughs> all right john i'm sorry no that was great uh no, that was great no the old no i'm i'm sorry i refuse to just, i'm gonna bang i'm gonna bang the gravel bang okay. the ga- that's an in joke for you and me Bang the gavel and rule rule on that as acceptable. We're going to hear about some gavel banging for sure. I will sustain the wordplay. So on this episode of Ruined Childhoods, we're going to talk about the films of Joel Schumacher that were adaptations from John Grisham novels. Because he did two. Yes. And these are the two, The Client and A Time to Kill. The Client was from 1994, A Time to Kill, 1996. And... Even though they are, well, I think A Time to Kill is more of a courtroom movie than The Client is, but they're thrillers. Well, The Client is more of a thriller, but it's they're very exciting movies in very, very different ways, and they still very much have Joel Schumacher's fingerprints all over them, much in the way that Mark Sway's fingerprints are all over the car. We'll get into that. Sustained. <laughs> uh, so, Dan, do you want to talk about anything before we launch into the client? Yeah, um, I guess I'll personal history because, and it's just the fact that we're doing that we're doing this episode over the summer. The John Grisham books are notoriously great beach reads, and I remember bringing them on our our trips down to Georgia. Okay. So whereas whereas Georgia is not as featured in uh, Grisham's novels not as much as as Tennessee, Louisiana, Mississippi, I that was where I read those books and I remember I think I think I might have read a time to I think I might have read The Firm first. I read it I definitely read A Time to Kill when we were in Georgia. Okay. And I read The Client as well. I think those are the three that I've read. I might have read another John Grisham book at some point. I know I read The Client and it must have been your copy because I don't know, I can't imagine myself going to the Cranford, New Jersey public library and being like, where's the Grishams, please? <laughs> uh, so I'm sure that it was just on the shelf and I was like, oh, I'll, I'll read a hard chapter book. And uh, I remember reading, <laughs> starting to read The Client and our mom was just like, Oh, so uh, what's happening in your book? She clearly like hadn't read it. And I was like, oh, well, um, the one kid is teaching the other kid how to smoke a cigarette. And she was like, great. <laughs> great. Glad you're reading. <laughs> I really thought she had read. I know. She, I'm pretty sure she read The Firm because actually when when the film. Well, this is The Client, not The Firm. Yes. I, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, but she was aware of John Grisham movies. Like I, I saw 
the firm with her. Right, but um, this might have been before the client was a movie. I Possibly. Know. I mean, I think I think I. I By the way, it. apologies if anybody can hear my dog. There's a a lot of activity going on in our building today, and uh, she's going a little cuckoo bananas. Not at all. Dogs are also a big feature here. Yep. More in a time to kill. Yeah, but yeah. So I remember reading these books. I remember really loving the client and I thought Susan Sarandon was was cast perfectly as Reggie Love and we'll talk more about that. I remember real like a time to kill though really was the one that got me and mm. it's the one I recommend to my students and I was thinking about it I was like well why was it because and we'll talk more about the movie but I was like, it's not my favorite movie Grisham adapt adaptation, which I mean, the client is, but it was my favorite book of his. And I think that it's just at the time that when I read it, when, you know, 13, 14, 15, a time to kill, you don't have to know a lot to get. Like I didn't know a lot about organized crime and uh -huh. things like that. So that even though like we grew up with our father, I was thinking about it. I was like, we probably had all these like files in our house and had no <laughs> idea. Cause he was a prosecutor in yeah. Essex He's, County, New Jersey. So, right. And then union County, but yeah. Oh, why don't, I don't know what you mean. There's no, uh, no mob presence in New Jersey. <laughs> No, no, no. It's, it's just TV. It's not it's like one of the most famous television shows uh, was about that exact thing. Hey, you know what? One of the other most famous television shows on that same on that same channel is Game of Thrones, which is about dragons, which don't exist. And we'll leave it at that. <laughs> except, except outside of the window of Ted Danson's apartment in Cousins, in form of neon. Correct. Back to Schumacher. Wow. Back yes. to Schumacher. Well, anyway, I read these books, and when the movies started coming out, I saw uh, The Firm, The Pelican Brief, and The Client, and A Time to Kill. And the difference, and it was like The, the Firm and Pelican Brief are really well made, and we've got Julia Roberts. Yeah, I watched The Pelican Brief for the first time recently, and it just like didn't do it for me it is slow it is slow and also there's a lot of like decisions that happen where i'm just like what and also when denzel washington anytime he takes notes he takes like the worst notes if you watch that movie and you look at the notes that he's taking he's, he's just never like, gonna be able to use those notes an hour later he's gonna be like what <laughs> yeah he's like what was i even thinking of yeah that? i don't even know is this a shopping list <laughs> yeah the firm i the firm is very long but it's also pretty slow it's, and yeah yeah the firm definitely has the firm has much more uh, exciting parts and great performances an awesome cast uh also oscar nominated like holly hunter was nominated for that yeah, and I will watch it again. I think that the last time I watched it might have been at your place when you first moved to Seattle. You were in like a temporary living situation and I was like babysitting and I think I put on the firm. You might have. Uh, I know. I mean, that's my wife. That's one of her favorite movies. She said she's seen ah. it at least 20 times. Whoa. Yeah. 
I can vouch for being there for, I think, at least three of those. Wow. And yeah, I've seen it a fair number. It's a good movie. And and I want to, you know, we're going to circle back around to those other Grishams because Sidney Pollack directed The Firm. Right. Mm-hmm. And made them really well. But man, Joel Schumacher, I think, between Joel Schumacher and Akiva Goldsman, the uh, screenwriter that he worked with. Mm-hmm. On both of them, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. also on the bat, the Batman movies, which, by the way, oh. Joel Schumacher, who in every obituary, it's like St. Almost Fire or Lost Boys I and know. Batman. He directed just as many John Grisham adaptations. Yeah, he did, too. And they're 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 both they're both great. And they're, I really yeah, they really move. Uh, they are exciting. And that was what made those books fun, fun to read. Yeah. And we'll talk we'll get into the literary value a bit more, but they were fun and exciting to read, especially The Client and A Time to Kill, which, again, as a, you know, teenager, I understood it. It wasn't as adult. It wasn't as complex. Well, what's also interesting about The Client is that that is a movie that's about a child. And Mm -hmm. I think that... It, for a young reader, as a way to get into reading more adult books, it's a really effective book to to read, I think, at that stage. A relatable uh, protagonist, which also John mm-hmm. Grisham does have a young adult series as well. The Theodore right. Boone Kid Lawyer series. Didn't he also write, like, Christmas with the Cranks? Yes. He, the The book Skipping Christmas which oh, uh, Christmas with, name, yeah. yeah yeah different name but Christmas with the Cranks is based on Skipping Christmas and there have been a few other adaptations of there's there was the chamber uh with Chris O'Donnell and mm. Gene Hackman but Joel Schumacher didn't direct that and that is that wasn't that good and then did Grisham write Rainmaker Yes. So uh, Rainmaker, which Francis Ford Coppola directed, which I I liked that one. That's my number. That's probably my number three. Yeah. Matt Damon's great. Matt, Damon. Matt Danny DeVito. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Claire I like that one a lot. Yeah. Rainmaker was great. And then, oh, there was also he wrote a Oh, There was the street lawyer, which they adapted into it. They tried to adapt into a TV series. Mm-hmm. They also did with the client. He's got some upcoming projects, which I think we will actually get to. Who's got some upcoming projects? John Grisham. Oh, I was like, Joel Schumacher's Not... dead, bro. No. Well, yeah. Jo- uh, no, John Grisham. So we'll we'll get more into that. But yeah, so there were some other movies based. I feel like there's one I'm forgetting. There was The, the Rainmaker. Oh, um, Gingerbread Man, which wasn't based on a oh. book. But John Grisham wrote it directly for the screen. And Robert Altman directed that. With Kenneth Branagh as a oh like Louisiana-based lawyer and Hmm. it's very uh it's not currently it's not streaming you know on any of the subscription services Mm -hmm. but i remember watching it i remember you know i'm a fan of altman's style so it was a i I remember enjoying it and i remember it had a pretty impressive cast as well robert duvall okay almost positive (laughs) yeah Sounds about right. Why not? So So. uh, why don't we get into the client? Uh, I just have a short synopsis. We're going to definitely do a deeper dive, but here's the here's the framework. Ahem, ahem. Latchkey kids Mark and Ricky Sway are off on a harmless adventure to smoke cigarettes in the woods when a black car pulls up behind them, but in a way where they can't be seen. 
The Suede brothers notice that the man is attaching a hose to his tailpipe in an effort to asphyxiate himself. After a few attempts by Mark to thwart his suicide attempts, the man catches him and pulls him into the car, threatening to take Mark with him into the afterlife, all while explaining that he is Romy Clifford, an attorney whose client was a mob hitman who offed a senator, and only Romy knows where the body is buried. Rather than be murdered by the mob, Romy decides to kill himself. Because I guess it would be better? After Mark uses his wiles to get away, Romy decides to do it the quick way. He sticks the barrel of a gun in his mouth and pulls the trigger. Once they are home, Ricky Sway falls into a post-traumatic shock. Mark finds his way back to the scene of the suicide where he is discovered by a shitty cop who also finds the cigarettes left behind by Mark and Ricky. After it's revealed that Mark's fingerprints, which were obtained in a super shady way, are all over the interior of the car, there's no denying that Mark knows more than he's letting on. He rushes to hire a lawyer and finds Reggie Love, a recovering alcoholic who lost her kids in an ugly divorce years earlier. Mark needs her to protect him from Reverend Roy Fultrig, a shark of a lawyer who could easily get Mark to spill the beans, endangering his entire family once the mob finds out. On the run from the mob and Reverend Roy's team, Mark and Reggie's bond grows stronger, leading them to find the body together before the mob does. If Reggie can trade the information about the senator's whereabouts for witness protection for the Sways, everyone can get what they want, except the mob. That's my synopsis. Uh, I'm just going to run through a cast list briefly. As we mentioned, Susan Sarandon is a Reggie love. Oscar nominated? Yep, Oscar Oscar nominated. nominated. Tommy Lee Jones is Reverend Roy Fultrig, who is just awesome in this. He's so good. Uh, Brad Renfro making his debut as Mark Sway, total unknown, plucked out of complete obscurity and absolutely kills it. Pour one uh, out. Well, I'm, after you get through the cast list, I want to talk a little bit about Brad Renfro. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Mary Louise Parker is Diane Sway, Mark Sway's mother. And, you know, she is, you know, they live in a trailer. She has a job that pays nothing. And, you know, she has dreams of having a, you know, a house with a walk-in closet. And, you know, she's just never going to get that in, in her eyes. And, um, just been dealt a shitty hand in life and, uh, yeah, is just trying to deal with it. Our trailer. They burnt down our home. We got, we got nothing left. Who did? <laughs> How the hell do I know? Somebody they saw, two people, they's leaving and it's all gone. All of it. Mom, it's my Man, fault. I'm so sorry, really. Look, it's gonna be all right. Do you know if you have insurance? That, it's none of your business, really. I'm sorry, Diane. I didn't mean anything about it. I was just trying to help you, son. What is this crap? Oh, it's just a few things I put together to make you feel a little more comfortable. Mama Love cooked you. I don't need your charity. It's not charity, And I don't Diane. need you trying to anyway. come in here and take away my son. I'm Mark's so... already got a mother. I know that. You're doing a fine job. I anyway. don't need your help. I'm sorry if I offended. Get out! David Speck is Ricky Sway. Uh, Anthony LaPaglia as Barry the Blade Moldano. Barry the Blade. Who's, oh my God, he is such a Joel Joel Schumacher character. He wears these like shiny suits with no shirts and mesh (laughs) tank tops. He's wearing like that MC Hammer jacket with no shirt. Well, we're introduced to his character. He has oh. his blade with like a maraschino cherry on it. And he like eats it off of the knife. I love his accent. Anthony LaPaglia. He's so, is so good. Great. 
I love him. Um, let's see. Who do we have here? Anthony Heald. Is it Heald or Held? I, I believe it's Anthony Heald. Yeah, Anthony Heald is one of the attorneys who also shows up in A Time to Kill. I really wish... I'm sorry. Can I just interject a yeah. moment on Anthony Heald? It's yeah. just that I wish that at some point there had been a movie where Anthony Heald and William Atherton got to be <laughs> like just really, really nice guys. Yeah. Like just really like friendly, just the friendliest, nicest people you've ever met because yeah. they are absolute dicks in every movie. Absolutely. I, I feel yeah. like William Atherton might have one movie where he's like likable. <laughs> uh yeah, I don't know. I can't think of it. <laughs> I can't think of one off the top of my head, but I'm yeah. just like Anthony Heald, who was he was the uh, the head of the the hospital where Hannibal Lecter is held in Silence of the Lambs. And he's like all creepy with Jodie Foster. Oh, he's uh, it's, he's awful in every. I he mean, he is so good at being an slime. awful character. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so Bradley Whitford in one of his, I think, first roles is another one of the attorneys. Uh, we have Anthony Edwards as Clint, who is Reggie Love's assistant. Paralegal? Paralegal. But the thing is, like, they they have a very close relationship, and it's like, are they dating? That was what Alicia thought, my, yeah, my wife. We watched it together. hard to really say. Uh, Anthony Edwards, once there was a rumor that he was living in our hometown. Well, hello, full circle. This is the, so here's another connection in the sh- the world of Schumacher. Apparently, the reason why Kiefer Sutherland was at the Riverside Inn, uh, oh. aka The Dive, the reason why Kiefer Sutherland was there drinking with the, you know, guys I went to high school with, I got this confirmed, by the way, okay. by Hal Hansen. So, um, Anthony Edwards and Kiefer Sutherland are friends and that Kiefer Sutherland was visiting Anthony Edwards in Cranford and wound up at the dive. Okay. Apparently not with Anthony Edwards. Okay. Well, uh, I have also had drinks with Kiefer Sutherland in LA because he, uh, we, we would do something called the Kiefer crawl. We would just go to all the bars that, which yes. was like in my neighborhood, you know, there was just a, a few bars that he would pop up at all the time. I uh, had drinks with them at the cha-cha lounge. I feel like we might've gone to one of the, like the last, when oh, I came maybe. out to visit uh, seven years ago. <laughs> yeah. It's like the Ye Rustic Tavern, the drawing room um, where you'll often find people you've seen on screen uh, doing karaoke. Kiefer! Kiefer! Uh, so anyway, back to the yeah. list. Uh, so Ozzy Davis is Judge Harry Roosevelt. I don't think I'm really... Oh, William H. Macy plays uh, oh, the yeah, doctor the... who cares mm-hmm. for Ricky Sway uh, at the hospital. Very small part. Yeah, yeah. Uh, though he, he's in it throughout. Um... He's in it throughout, but like it's not a major role. It's just, you know, well, there's you a few lines here and there. William H. Macy, at the, so Fargo doesn't come out until 96. Mm. Um, but also, John, you, you mentioned Bradley Whitford in one of his first roles. This is a good seven years after Adventures in Babysitting. Oh, I forgot he's in Adventures in Babysitting. So cool, as his license I, plate says. Yes, That's a, so That would cool. be a Joel, Joel, um, Joel Schumacher move if I ever heard one. His car and the license plate, forget it. So cool. Yeah. But this is where Bradley Whitford is becoming more of like the, the like West Wing Bradley Whitford. Right. Uh, not quite the Billy Madison Bradley Whitford. No. Although that for me was like the movie that 
was like, this guy is Bradley Whitford. Yes. I know him now. Yeah, yeah. It, it took it, it took a few seasons of West Wing for me to get over. Like, you know, Eric's pregnant. Oh, he's going to be a soccer player. Oh my god, he's so oh, he's so Bradley good Whitford Madison. is perfect in Billy Madison. Okay, all right, we yeah. got to stay on the client. Yeah, so that's essentially the cast. So the the hospital where Ricky Sway is being treated is also like an extremely Joel Schumacher hospital where it's a lot just of like steam. A lot of steam. Like you go into the stairways and there's like these weird uh <laughs> steamy passageways with that are like red with red lights coming through the steam. Well, it's like really it's all bizarre. the it's all the HVAC equipment because there's that bridge that goes across. So it's kind of like the one wing of the hospital and the other wing of the hospital. On, honestly, right. in terms of the Joel Schumacher movies we've looked at, this is the most natural setting for it that i've seen but it seems it seems flatliners it just came out of nowhere it seems odd though that it would be so accessible you know that such a an area would be so accessible to easily to ricky sway or to mark sway mark sway mark sway yeah so let's see i'm trying to like go back a little bit so there's like the sleazy cop i forget who plays him will Patton. it's will Patton, Patton. who you might remember also from armageddon and Right. Um, he's a things. total he's a total jackass in this and oh, yeah. you know he he gives Mark a can of soda that he's really just giving him so he could get some fingerprints off of it and that's how they match his fingerprints to the inside of the car and all that kind of stuff and he like talks to Mark in a really rotten way. He's like, you know, they have kid-sized electric chairs and ugh. FBI, huh? Whew. You know, I hear that they're sending the Reverend Roy Foltrig himself. That's bad. That's... You know that the FBI puts kids in jail if they break the law. And if a kid has been involved in a murder, they got a special little um, kid-sized electric chair. I saw it once. It was about so high. Did you know that when somebody gets electrocuted, the current is so strong it makes the blood in the veins boil. God. Fry up just like a piece of bacon. You're the only pig around here. Oh. We'll see you later, Marcus. It is one step. It is step. It is one step away from him telling Mark like that he's going to have a boyfriend in prison. Like he they and it's not just him because it's it's Fultrig and the whole team. Yeah. The way that they talk to him. And this is something this is something that we will, I'm sure, get into more with with Laura. But like, how illegal was it to threaten him the way that it the way that they did? And right. Like they, yeah. to me, they really, whereas like they treated it as, well, no, we didn't do that. And she's like, oh, yes, you did. And they're like, okay, you got us. Well, yeah, because he tape recorded it. And yeah. yeah, so they were trying to get him to make a statement without his mother present or any sort of legal guardian or anything. Well, and they advised him against having an attorney. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not, Absolutely. Didn't just, di- they didn't just like not advise him. They advised him against having an attorney. Yeah. So, so oh, there's also a oh. great dynamic between Reverend Roy's team and the and his like group of lawyers plus the local 
Is he like the local DA or JT something? Watch, J- JT Walsh. JT he's, Walsh. Yeah. Uh, the local FBI. He's he's from like the local FBI right, office. Right. He's McThune. FBI. Jason McThune. Yeah. And he he just wants so badly to be in like the cool kids club. We got to pour one out for JT Walsh. That, that guy yeah. is amazing. Yeah. Uh, he's he's so good in this. That group of lawyers is they're they're wonderful. And it, the thing is, like, I totally understand. Yes. What they did to Mark at the beginning was super, super slimy. But I understand that to them, it's just like oh, we just have to solve this, but they aren't considering the ramifications on the Sway family and what what it would do to them. Right. It, it's They are, like, they are so, so, so close to solving, the, like, uh, the murder of a United yeah. States senator. So oh, this is a big deal. Yeah. So, so in yeah, a way, I can, I can understand, the, you know, their need to, like, get this done fast. But as the movie goes on and you see the way that, uh, you know, Tommy Lee Jones and Susan Sarandon interact and by the end of it, and Susan Sarandon is calling all the shots and she's like, these are the demands. You have to do this. We need to get them a house of the walk-in closet and this, this and that and transfer uh, Ricky to this, like a better hospital. And then they can pick whatever city they want to live in. Like once she has all the cards it's awesome and he just kind of like crumble tommy lee jones is just like all right whatever you need and they're you know they're friends at the end even mark and tommy lee jones they're just like you oh know, yeah there's they had they finally understand each other and they respect each other congratulations miss way jason mcthune over here will escort you to phoenix take care of matters once y'all arrive right this way miss way all right guys let's go yes sir come on let's, let's go, go bud come on Thanks, Reverend Roy. You've been a real pain in the ass. Thank you, son, and good luck to you. I assure you, you have been an even larger pain in the ass. <laughs> Give me five. <laughs> well, yeah, because they both they, they both sides know how to play a little dirty. Yeah, and both and, side, and there's and they respect. There's like there's that mutual respect. Yeah, and uh, Tommy Lee Jones, one of the I guess uh, pseudo Joel Schumacher players, just in the two movies. I believe, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, Batman yeah, he, he didn't have such a good time on Batman Forever. But well, wasn't to... that mostly because he and Jim Carrey were at each other's throats the whole time? The from what I read, it was more just that he was at Jim Carrey's throat. Oh. <laughs> uh yeah, I mean, maybe there's a, a side to the story that I'm not hearing, but uh it, it just sounded it, it, to me, it seems like you you've got so Tommy Lee Jones has, uh, you know, he's been in movies, you know, was was acting all throughout the the 80s, probably yeah. the, like the 70s as well. I'm trying to think of some of his earlier yeah. credits, but I can think of Tommy Lee Jones credits going back to 84. But then you've got Under Siege. Mm-hmm. Or wait, oh, you he's got, great in Under Siege. Oh, wait, sorry. No, JFK comes first. So he does JFK, gets nominated for an Oscar. For his performance in JFK, mm-hmm. then he does Under Siege, like which comes out like a few months after JFK. But Under Siege is, and he, you're right. He, play, I mean, Tommy Academy Award winner Tommy Lee Jones as the bad guy in a Steven Seagal movie, and 
it makes it it's why under siege is he's got like long hair and he's just like playing very a very very different character than you've ever seen him play yeah yeah he's more nick cagey if you will i know things are a little are a little chaotic for you right now chaotic wake up tom you know and I know that chaos and bedlam are consuming the entire world. UV light waves are only the beginning, Tom. We have an inch of topsoil left. Topsoil? It's sexually transmitted diseases, deforestation, irreversibly progressive depletion of the global gene pool. It all adds up to oblivion, pal. Governments will fall. Anarchies will reign. It's a brave new world. Bill. What are you planning to do? Do you realize, Tom, that whatever I do is inevitable? Can we agree on that? Well, not necessarily. Well, see, there you go, Tom. See, you can't argue with me here or negotiate or attempt any chicken shit psychological ploy. You have to reconsider your entire philosophy. All right, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, whatever you decide to do is inevitable. Now, look at my life, Tom. The life you people tried to take. There was Annapolis, it was Vietnam, there's war college, so on. You know, I missed the 60s, and I truly believe that if I could have been there to make my contribution, everything would have worked out fine. Look, Bill, if this is about reliving the 60s, you can forget about it, buddy. The movement is dead. Yes, of course, hence the name. Movement, it moves a certain distance, then it stops, you see? A revolution gets its name by always coming back around in your face. You tried to kill me, you son of a bitch. So welcome to the revolution. There's more to follow, I'll stay in touch. But then, then the fugitive, and he wins so, the Oscar for the fugitive. Yeah. So just and going back a little bit, out. he was he got his start. He was in uh, Love Story, seventy one uh, in nineteen seventy. Seventy. He, you know, he did a few little things. He's in some TV stuff throughout the seventies. Uh, he's in Rolling Thunder in seventy seven. Mm-hmm. Um, Coal Miner's Daughter in eighty. Right. Was he nominated for Coal Miner's Daughter? No, he was not. Because he had a pretty big role in that. Sissy Spacek won Best Actress. Uh, It was nominated for Best Picture. It was nominated for Best Writing. And nominated for Best Cinematography. Nominated for Editing. Nominated for Sound. Nominated for Art Direction, Set Direction. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So, he's in... Yeah, I mean, yeah, Lonesome Dove. So, anyway. Tommy Lee Jones. Amazing career. By the time we get to uh, Batman Forever, which was 95? 95. 95. Which brings it back to what makes Joel... Another thing about Joel Schumacher is, man, this guy had a summer blockbuster, 94, 95, mm-hmm. 96, 97, if we're, we're counting Batman and Robin. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it was a summer blockbuster. It might have sucked, but it was a summer blockbuster. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So for four years in a row, he had huge, because The Client and A Time to Kill were huge hits. Yeah. And even like, I I don't recall uh, Flatliners box office, but I'm pretty sure Flatliners like did pretty well. I know The Lost Boys, because it was 1987, I feel like The Lost Boys was- What a year. In the th- yeah, I mean that's how good that year was. I think Lost Boys was like in the top like thirty, maybe thirties. Yeah, yeah. So the client is a big hit for Joel Schumacher. Yeah. He's got this amazing cast, and yeah, they all they really brought the book to life. Yeah, I think and as well. And as let's you talk could. a little bit about uh, Susan Sarandon, Reggie Love. So uh, 
like I mentioned, she her character lost her kids in a divorce, and she lives with her mother, and who's a hoot. She is great. Oh yeah, she's great. The actress uh, who played her mama love is eight years older than Susan Sarandon. Right? Yeah, I read yeah. that. Uh, but it, you know what? Oh, it, it, it works. Worked. It works. It was totally it fine. Works. And uh, yeah, so she and Mark developed this kind of like mother son relationship. And it, I don't know, it's really well done. It never gets into like a weird territory. Uh, they're kind of playing a game of back and forth of trust. And uh, I, I don't know, I think that Brad Renfro really sold it. Like he, I mean, this is his first thing. I can't believe that he was able Plucked to pull, pull something like this from off. literally. I mean, we know that most overnight sensations are not overnight sensations, but Brett, because John Grisham insisted he had yeah. John Grisham. This is so this is what a player Grisham was at this point. He ins, like he had full casting approval and oh, he cool. demanded like they wanted Macaulay Culkin. Oh, uh, yeah, I saw that. And John Grisham. How weird would that have been? Yeah, it's it's like Romy killed himself. Palms to cheeks. <laughs> yeah, everyone uh, could hear what that sound was. <laughs> you all know what I did. Uh, so, but Grisham insists on not just an unknown, but a kid from the Memphis area. Yeah, and they find him in uh, Knoxville, Knoxville, yeah, Tennessee. I think so. But Brad Renfro was being raised by his grandmother. His mother kind of just took off, got married, and went away and he was like already into like, you know, smoking cigarettes was nothing new for Brad Renfro. Right. Uh, smoking weed was not that he does that in the movie, but you know, Brad Renfro himself was a kid who was kind of forced to grow up in a lot of ways early based on his circumstances, just like Mark Sway. So, and he was uh, recommended by, I want to say, like, a, it was a police athletic league coach mm-hmm. that okay. I want to say was friendly with the casting director. And Oh, that helps. Uh, or, well, I mean, it was, or, or or maybe they, no, 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 they had gone, the casting director had, Mally Finn, had gone to them and said, like, look, do you have any kids? Like, we're looking for someone who's, you know, he's rough around the edges. And, and... Based on the novel, and yeah, it's been a long time since I've read it, but that's the kid. That's the character. Yeah. And so lucky to find him, but it's so... Just the story of Brad Renfro is so sad and so tragic because... Yeah, we lost him in 2008. 2008, and it's worth... It's worth pointing out, though, what happened to him, because I think it goes along the lines of what we've discussed with Corey Haim uh, um, as well. But Brad Renfro kind of fell into he fell into a crowd because he followed up the well, he did Tom and he did Tom and Huck after after the client. Right, yeah. But then he did uh, 1998. Yeah. Sleep. So Sleepers, which was sleepers was some rough rough material yeah but then he goes and and he does apt pupil right which we've talked about on the show before yeah yeah and i'm just the more that that comes out like i did some i did some research on 
you know, Brad Renfro's connection to Brian Singer. Oh, yeah. And mm. who, Brian Singer, like what I, I read an article on BuzzFeed and uh, let me just want to credit the author here, but it was uh, it was an article uh, called How Hollywood Failed Brad Renfro, uh, mm. Adam, Adam B. Vary. And uh, this is from from 2018. But he kind of talks about how Brad Renfro got into heroin yeah over over the years and uh like he was trying to buy heroin on skid row in los angeles and i remember hearing about that yeah it's so sad because i almost i feel like i i like joel schumacher took care of the kids that he worked with Mm -hmm. i get that i get that impression and uh, there's some other research that you can do if if you care to. We're not going to get into it, but on uh, Brian Singer and the allegations against Brian Singer made by young men who were teenagers, uh, including like a, a kid who was at who went to the middle school where they filmed Apt Pupil, mm-hmm. who claims that Brian Singer basically like had him on set just to kind of like mess around with and like yeah some and and yeah it's it it, it's all brings up a whole other question of you know you have someone who is i I think undeniably a talented director but can i watch the usual suspects can i watch x-men without that in my head and and i mean it's sad in so many ways but it's so regrettable because like, you know, these things could have been prevented, but they, you know, someone like Brad Renfro's, you know, he just goes into this, you know, shame spiral. Mm-hmm. I'm cribbing from Stuart Smalley, but yeah, it's a really sad uh, story. I'm sorry yes. to get onto a dark, well, into a, you well, know, and I, uh, but the, the final film that Brad Renfro is in the informers, I was an extra in. Oh. I did a day or so on that. I, I was in a funeral scene. So was that Billy Bob Thornton? Billy Bob that? Thornton, Winona Ryder was in it. It's like a Is really Brad Easton Ellis uh, yeah. adaptation. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I didn't cast. see it, but it, I don't think I don't remember it being very good. But really great cast, and uh, yeah, Brad Renfro's final appearance did you have any interaction with him or no i don't think that he was in the scene that i was there for billy bob thornton was i think kim basinger oh yes yes yeah she was there yeah so i anyway it was a big like cattle call scene i was just you know a person wearing a suit and a crowd of people wearing nice clothes anyway on film but speaking of, uh, going back a little bit, speaking of sexual deviance uh, and the usual suspects, should we get into A Time to Kill? Oh, I might have to object to that segue. Ah, uh, uh, Yikes. Yeah. Yeah. But, but we could say, speaking of awful things that should have been prevented, oh, yeah. let's talk about A Time to Kill. 
Yeah. And by that, I also was referring to Kevin Spacey. I wasn't referring to... Uh, oh. Yeah. <laughs> it yes. Could, it uh, could be could looked at in many different oh, ways. Oh, tr- trust me. I sat there and I was just like, I am so glad that I do not need to like... Kevin Spacey's character in this is... is Shall I get into my synopsis? Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Again, go ahead. really just a framework of a multi-layered film. After the violent rape and attempted murder of his 10-year-old daughter, Carl Lee Haley kills two racist hillbillies responsible, knowing that if they went to trial, they would likely be locked up for only 10 years at most. He turns to rookie lawyer Jake Brigance, who helped his brother out of a bind the year prior. In an effort to plead insanity, Brigance does everything he can to defend Carl Lee's actions. Meanwhile, the brother of one of the rapists is radicalized by the KKK, leading to a Madison County faction of the Klan to retaliate against Brigance and everyone connected with him. They start with burning a cross, then someone attempts to put a bomb under his house, they beat the life out of his secretary's husband, and then they ultimately burn his entire house down. Luckily, Jake's wife and daughter had already left to stay with her parents, his wife fearing that Jake only took the case to prove that he's a hotshot lawyer, and not that he actually cares about justice. At the beginning of the case, a young law student slash bleeding heart liberal named Ellen Roark rolls into town to help Brigance, and she proves to be a very valuable asset, especially since Brigance needs all the help he can get. After all, he is going up against D.A. Rufus Buckley, a slimy lawyer played by a slimier actor, Kevin Spacey, who scoffs at Brigance's ideals. Jake and his team, which also includes Harry Rex Vonner, a divorce attorney friend, managed to ultimately win the case, but not before a few major life lessons from Carl Lee Haley. So Jake Brigance is played by Matthew McConaughey, Sandra Bullock is Ellen Roark, Samuel L. Jackson is Carl Lee Haley, as I said, Kevin Spacey is Rufus Buckley, uh, Harry Rex Vonner is played by Oliver Platt, one of the Joel Schumacher players, Charles S. Dutton is Sheriff Ozzy Walls, uh, Brenda Fricker is Ethel Twitty, who I know best as the... Uh, the Pigeon Lady from Home Alone 2. <laughs> Donald Sutherland is Lucian Wilbanks, who is Brigance's uh, d- uh, drunk mentor who has been disbarred and claims he'll never go into a courtroom again until the end of this movie, apparently. Kiefer Sutherland plays Freddie Lee Cobb, the, uh, the new kind of de facto leader of the KKK, the Madison County. The uh, Madison County chapter. Yeah. Yes. Um, Clavern. Clavern. I, the, I want to use the appropriate nomenclature here. I, are okay. they a clavern? I don't know. How do they subdivide it? You see, the KKK is actually an organized organization. Right. Yeah. Unlike the mythical Antifa. Antifa. <laughs> they yeah, have uh, they have application forms. I love it. They they do. It's like, please print. Uh, so and also the the like more local like Grand Wizard is um uh, Kurtwood Smith. Kurtwood Smith, yeah. Stump yeah, Sisson. Oh my God. He's, yeah, Stump Sisson, who is perfect for this role. He Perfectly just plays cast. evil so well. Uh, we have Patrick McGugan as Judge Omar Noose. Awful name. Uh, Ashley Judd is Carla Brigance, Jake's wife. We have, oh my God, it's such a huge cast. Chris Cooper as uh, Deputy mm-hmm. Sheriff Dwayne Looney in possibly the only movie where he's like a real good dude. Chris Cooper? Yeah. No. He's notorious for being like the bad guy. 
Well, I want to say that in the other movie that he appeared in with Matthew McConaughey that year, Lone Star, he is oh. also, he is, he, I think he's, he's the protagonist in that. And, you know, I forgot about Lone Star, but I just think about like what Chris Cooper went on to do like kind of after this well you think about what american beauty american beauty adaptation uh, adaptation he's, he's, he's not the he, he's not a bad guy no. he's he's just kind of but he's not a he's not the greatest guy well no no but i look chris um uh, what about october sky he was a villain in a muppet movie yes he was a anyway villain he in a plays a villain movie. really well uh nikki cat plays billy ray cobb doug hutchinson is uh Pete Willard, who is the other rapist, you would remember Doug Hutchinson probably best from his appearance on the X Files, where he plays the squeeze the guy from Squeeze who gets in through all the like. Wait, the guy from the band Squeeze? No, from the episode Squeeze, I, he played Eugene Toomes. I never who, watched the oh, X Files. I uh, talk to Scott. Yeah. Oh, believe Scott me, Scott Weiner, X Files fanatic believe me he knows who doug hutchinson is doug hutchinson who is or was married to courtney stodden who is kind of an internet sensation person uh in all of the weirdest ways and then the aforementioned anthony healed as uh dr wilbur road road heaver who uh yeah yeah who um is kind of the like slimy psychiatrist who is supposed to you know he discredit he, yeah yeah he gets paid to testify right in these, uh, in these and cases. the the counterpart for the defense is m emmett walsh as dr willard tyrell bass <laughs> who is drunk um chris cooper very likable in little women that's true very likable in little women uh kind of unrecognizable in Little Women. This is the yes. 2019 Little Women. Uh, I didn't realize it was him until at one point I was like, is that Chris Cooper? Oh, no. yeah. No, yeah, he was very recognizable. So A Time to Kill is complicated. You know, it it definitely has a lot of that white savior thing going on. Where it's and it addresses it in like the final like speech that Samuel L. Jackson gives to Matthew McConaughey about how like they're not friends that you know their kids aren't gonna play together this changes nothing. Check, I, I can't do no laughing prison. You gotta get me off now. If it's you on trial, it's not me. We're not the same, Carly. The jury has to identify with the defendant. They see you, they see a yard worker, they see me, they see an attorney. I live in town, you live on the hill. Well, you white and I'm black. <sighs> CJ, you think just like them. That's why I picked you. You one of them, don't you see? Oh, you think you ain't because you eating clothes and, and, and you out there trying to get me off on TV talking about black and white. But fact is, you just like all the rest of them. When you look at me, you don't see a man. You see a black man. Carly, I am your friend. We ain't no friends, Jake. We on different sides of the line. 
ain't never seen you in my part of town. I bet you don't even know where I live. Our daughters, Jake, they ain't never gonna play together. What are you talking about? America is a war, and you on the other side. How a black man ever gonna get a fair trial with the enemy on the bench in the jury box? My life in white hands. You, Jake, that's how. You my secret weapon, cause you one of the bad guys. You don't mean to be, but you are. It's how you was raised. Nigger, Negro, Black, African American, no matter how you see me, you see me as different. You see me like that jury sees me. You are them. And then he gives this like impassioned, you know, closing statement that's like, I wrote this whole thing, but I'm not going to read it. Instead, I'm going to just tell you what I'm thinking. And it's like, this is, we're not going to win this case because everybody's racist and it doesn't matter what we say or do. You're going to you know, say that he's guilty and so on and so forth. And then he like goes into this whole thing and makes them close their eyes. And he describes like in detail what happened to Tanya. And he's like, now picture. And he's like crying the whole time and all choked up. And he's like, now picture that she's white. And then everybody's just like, Oh, twist. Well, yes, yes. So we, we lead back to why this book was more impactful impactful with me as why it resonated more with me as an early teenager because mm-hmm. it's so i mean it's also grisham's first novel it's uh i mean i can give some background i got a little background yeah, and here. i i will say it's i liked it i liked it a lot and for 1996 i'd say i mean if i believe it won like the naacp image award like best motion picture like it it's just like if this movie, the way it was made, was put out now, it would oh, be a Green different Book. conversation. Green Book. It would have been Green Booked. It would have been yeah. Green Booked. Yeah. So, but yeah, you're right. And it's also like you've got John Grisham, who is, he's a, who starts off as a lawyer. He's a lawyer himself. I think he sees, I think Jake Bergantz is very much john who john grisham perhaps would like to be in the courtroom Uh or maybe perhaps like he wanted to be a lawyer like jake brigantz who he is bringing back in a new novel called a time for mercy huh interesting so yeah and just saw that on his uh his website so yeah and i i feel like this movie yeah in 1996 should have it was highly regarded it got good reviews but yeah it's got the whole white savior complex it's very to kill a mockingbird right which i believe is the well there's references to to kill a mockingbird oh yeah he it, it is totally acknowledged and in the 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 actual case that he that he based this on the it was a, a rape of a it was a 12 year old uh mm. white girl mm. so the the actual case that this is based on was not in fact in fact the accused was black mm-hmm. so it wasn't like the case he the case he based this on it was just the circumstances and then 
like his whole idea behind it, according to his website, was like, what would have happened if this girl killed the killer, killed the rapists? Uh huh. And and to me, it seems like he probably worked backwards from that and got to, all right, mm-hmm. well, what would those circumstances be? Well, under what circumstances would two rapists be set free? And would the would the father kn- like almost know that for a fact? Right. Yeah. So there's this scene before he kills them. It's like the night before where he goes to see Jake Brigance, who has at this point already found out about what happened. And he says to him, like, you know, they're probably going to get off. Right. Like, they're probably not going to serve because it happened because it happened like in the next county. over. Yeah. He's like, uh, you remember a couple years ago, this such and such happened. Yeah. So uh, he alludes to the idea that he's going to take matters into his own hands without actually saying I'm going to kill them. And uh, yeah, so it's. I, I think that Samuel L. Jackson in this movie is perfect. He's so good. Once again, we have an actor on a hot streak because mm-hmm. it's it's a year after Die Hard with a Vengeance. Man. Oh, Jesus, I'm sorry you got involved. Why you keep calling right? me Jesus? I look Puerto Rican to you. Guy back there called you Jesus. He man. didn't say Jesus. He said, hey, Zeus. My name is Zeus. Zeus? Yeah, Zeus. As in Father of Apollo, Mount Olympus. Don't fuck with me or I'll shove a lightning bolt up your ass. Zeus! You got a problem with that? Two years after Pulp Fiction. Royale yeah. For which he's Oscar nominated. I mean, and Samuel L. Jackson was in everything <laughs> pretty yeah. much before that. But now this was Samuel L. Jackson. Like, it, it's almost surprising to me that this film, I don't think it got any Academy Award nominations. Oh, yeah. Uh, most Sweat. Oh. The Oscar for Most Sweat. <laughs> Well, yeah, which the client could have been up for as well. Grisham movies I think a time to kill outsweats the client. Well, everyone is sweating in a time to kill. It is the sweatiest movie I've ever seen in my life. Tim Capello would be like, damn, that's a lot of sweat. That is a lot of sweat. (laughs) Yes, that is too much for Tim Capello. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, it is the middle of summer in uh, Mississippi. Yeah, totally. But even still... Oh, wait, are so they much in, sweat. They're in Mississippi, right? They're in Mississippi. Yeah. Uh, and we'll, we'll, we might bring this up when uh, when Laura comes on in a little bit. But uh, Laura has a tendency to ask questions about movies that are answered seconds later. And such is a thing that happened last night when we were watching this. And she was like, so where does this take place? And then the next second is a shot that's at, like an, a bird's eye shot of like the floor of the uh, the courthouse. And it just says Mississippi, really big and stone on the floor, like in marble. And uh, um, she just started laughing so hard because she's like, of course, it's literally the most prominent thing in the next shot the next second after I say this though. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so just a couple of, a couple of things to point out because this, like you said, a movie like this would resonate much differently now. And we, a lot of it would be considered outdated. The, yes, the white savior complex, yeah. the Jake, Jake Brigance, um, which I do like that. It's acknowledged. I, yes. And yes. also I, I want to call out the scene where the um like the reverend from the church has I uh, done like taken a collection from the church to help pay for things and has also partnered with the 
NAACP and to to hire a black lawyer. Well, except they didn't hire a black lawyer. <laughs> well, that's the thing is they that was the plan is yeah. was to do this because they don't want this. They even calls him a cracker. This white lawyer representing him. But it was really like Carly Haley's idea to have the money go to Jake Brigance because he's like, if it's a black lawyer, I'm losing this. Like, I need a white person to do this. Well, but they they end up bringing in Norman Rheingold and. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. Who a bit a bit of a stereotype there. Yeah. (laughs) Not but like, yeah, I would say the most like stereotypey character in this movie is Norman Rheingold. Mm hmm the uh, the lawyer that the NAACP brings in and i wonder that's something i wonder of like i wonder how much that actually happened and how much you know the the NAACP wasn't being 100% altruistic and yeah what well i mean for for this movie to still win the NAACP image award even after the NAACP is kind of like not villainized but they're definitely made to appear a little disingenuous what or... else was going to get it in 1996 the english patient <laughs> touche fargo <laughs> uh, i'm trying to remember other movies from 1996 it seems like like such a between year uh yeah. I, but... I mean i think that uh, it was it was smart for them to have a scene like that to kind of justify jake brigance doing what he does they do yeah i i think they do a good job of 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 addressing those little like those those both plot holes and loopholes mm-hmm. yeah and i do but i also i think that like i think about watching this movie now versus watching it then and i felt i think when i saw it back in 1996 at the lowes mountainside <laughs> okay I'm pretty sure I have the ticket stub. Uh, and I remember I saw it with a group of friends that I was doing uh, theater with that summer. And, uh, you know, you went to see it and it was an entertaining movie and that was it. And to me, it was so foreign and it was so mm. like nothing like that happened or like I didn't th- either. I didn't think that those things really happened it was so like such a suburban bubble right yeah and and then you look at now it's like falling down where you watch it then you're just like ah okay well that's a little that's a little much but and now i'm like that not only happened a lot then it happens now and we're still having these arguments about uh, Confederate flags, yeah. uh, which is one of the first images we see in the movie. First the image we see it's throughout the movie. Plus, also when they are leaving the courthouse and Carly Haley is free, leaving the courthouse at the end. Above him is the Mississippi flag, which has the Confederate flag on it. So it's like it's still there. It's just right on top yeah. of him the whole time. Yeah, yeah. This is not over. And I think about. The scene where, uh, where with 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 Kurtwood Smith is stump sissing, and he mm-hmm. says to 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 Kiefer Sutherland, the the Klan has always been there under the surface, waiting for the opportunity to deliver God's justice. Yeah. And I think about what we're seeing 
what we've seen over the last few years mm-hmm. and which is not like new but it's the surfacing of what's been there just right. like he says and he says like the clan goes silent for a couple of years and people think that we're gone but mm-hmm. we're not yeah, yeah I, no i thought it was really I, i'd be interested to know more about uh grisham's whether you know his experiences because i think he grew up in in mississippi in oxford perhaps okay. and i'd be interested to to know more about his like actual has he had actual experience with mm. the clan like what does yeah. he know what the applications look like are they more like the ones in this <laughs> or in black Klansmen? oh um, my god i think it's i no, i think it's it's i think it's interesting and I think that it also I like that the structure of the story, but also the filmmaking shows how different life can be in two different parts of one town. Yeah. And how you don't have to go far and people are living in in much worse conditions. And it's kind of like, well, I don't see it out my front window, so I don't have to think about it. Right. Well, think about the judge's house. I have a lot of thoughts about the judge's house. Where, oh, what the plantation? The plantation where he has like two black servants. I was waiting for Samuel L. Jackson in Django Unchained. Stephen, I was thinking. I've been thinking about out. Django a lot lately, <laughs> and it's just like, yeah, what do you, in the basement of that building? There's probably a fight going on right now. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't notice it the when I watched it, uh, oh, like maybe two weeks ago, but when I watched it last night. I don't know if I was just like not looking at the screen during that like two seconds, but it shows, yeah, there's like the, the woman who lets him in. And then there's the guy who's like, you know, judge, uh, whatever his name is, judge nooses, judge noose of all names, judge noose is upstairs, you know, (laughs) it's okay. John Grisham. It was your first novel. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, I mean, that was even just in those like few seconds where it shows that it's like, that is a, that's big. That's pretty big. Yeah, but and it brings me back to my personal experience reading the book. And what I thought about now was I was like, I read that book at sea. I read that book sitting on like plantation ground, which I didn't think of as a kid when we went to Georgia for vacation. But I'm like, I I read this book where, you know, this happens. And I was so blind to it and 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 unaware of it and to me it just happened in in books yeah so yeah so yeah the judge is he's corrupt he's he's got he's decided his verdict already yeah and and he's clearly sympathetic to 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 white people right i mean you see the judge palling around with kevin spacey's character and it's just you just know, like, this isn't a fair trial, but yeah. there's nothing that they can do about it. I, I do have to point out, I have a couple of notes on some things that I, I wanted to to point out, uh, some other kind of cell phones in here. The, uh, great, inter, great, like, there's this great, uh, I forget, I think it's Roark and... Uh, yeah, who we haven't even really talked about. And, and Jake, but they have this great discussion about northern liberalism versus southern liberalism so she is anti-death penalty and he is pro very adamantly so he's like we don't think i don't think we do it enough now the other night you said you were opposed to the death penalty yes sir why you're not Mm -mm. actually i'm very much in favor of it 
I'd like to go back to hanging on the court-ass lawn if we could. Are you kidding, right? No. The only problem with the death penalty, Rohawk, is that we do not use it enough. Well, have you told your client Carly Haley this? Carly Haley does not deserve the death penalty. Now, the two men who raped his daughter did. Okay, see, well, how do you decide who dies and who doesn't? Yeah, simple. Okay, you take the crime and you take the criminal. Mm -hmm. Now, say a crack dealer guns down an undercover cop. Well, you strap his ass to the chair, flick the switch. You know, for some reason, I, I, I thought you were a liberal. Well, I am a liberal, Roar. What I am not is a card-carrying ACLU radical. I do not believe in forgiveness nor in rehabilitation. I believe in safety. I believe in justice. I see. Well, let me ask you something. Have you ever seen a man executed? Now that I recall. All right, then what I suggest you do is you go watch a man be executed. You watch him die. You watch him beg. You watch him kick and spit the life out of him till he pisses and shits in his pants until he's gone. Then, you know what? Then you come back here and you sing this crap to me about justice. <clears throat> well, spare me your northern liberal Crimea river. We are the only enlightened ones in the northern oh. hemisphere. Bullshit. I'm so sorry. Yes, you are the enlightened. Yes, you are the enlightened. And that's why you brought me here to this this black diner in this, this black neighborhood, right? Right, so you can convince me you're this JFK meets Jesus Christ white boy. Is that, is that what it is? Or is it because you're just another repressed, hypocritical, southern provincial who maybe didn't want to be seen around town with a woman like myself? Yes, sir. You sure are enlightened. Well, you know what? I'm terribly sorry. I've made a mistake. I thought you were one of the good guys. Thank you very much for your time, Mr. Briggins. You know, she does a good job of calling him out. I think the Rourke car- character, I always say Roarch because that's how, that's how they, say they, it, yeah. they pronounce it. But when... I, I think that character is a it's a little exploit like the representation of women in the book is a little questionable, but at least she calls it out in the and uses her sexuality as Sandra Bullock playing work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she kind of takes advantage of that, like, you know, well, these sweaty Southern boys can clearly be swayed by this. Suede, Mark Sway, Ricky mm. Sway. I do have other connections, by mm. the way, but uh, I I think she's kind of like there's this obvious misogyny, and she takes advantage of that much the same way Susan Sarandon does in the mm-hmm. client. Yeah. So I think what I like about Grisham is I think he's trying, especially in these early novels, and as a white male author doing he's he's making an effort to show other perspectives right and i and i think that schumacher's film in in both the client and and time to kill i think schumacher's adaptations capture the spirit of the novels the sweat of the novels the uh you know the the tension because when you have like that sweat that's tension right there Mm -hmm. and there's a there's great tension now. There's a couple of things that there, there's the constant presence of the Mississippi flag in the courtroom, like yeah. a, a symbol of injustice where there is supposed to be justice. You've got the you know you've got the cop who's part of the clan, right? That's real. You've got the um, oh my, do you remember the one clansman like when when they're marching and they're all marching with their hoods on, but those one guy's got his he's got like the mask part of the hood oh, up mm-hmm. and he's got shades on and 
I was like, who is that guy? It's like, to me, these, there's always that standout, like the pink thong guy from the end of yeah. falling down. Well, <laughs> yeah. And by the end of the movie, it, you know, a lot of the Klansmen have their like masks up or like the hoods are like, they're not obscuring themselves anymore. No, no, they're right. The, the more that they're out there and the more that they're, you know, that they feel enabled, they, yeah. they're allowed to do what they're doing. Yeah. So, um, but, but also, also great shot to whoever threw the Molotov cocktail at Stump Sisson. Oh, and what a great way to kill that piece of shit. Oh, I know. Oh, I know. Yeah. It, it feels so, so good. Yeah. So uh, I also just want to talk about Sandra Bullock's character, Ellen Roark, a little bit, since we haven't really gotten too much into her. So what's happening is she rolls into town as this case is kicking off, and she is the daughter of a very wealthy person. So she doesn't want to be compensated for helping out with the trial. And she's a law student. She's got all these great ambitions. And she is sharp. And she uses her privilege to benefit them and she yeah. yeah so she weasels her way into the psychiatric center so she can dish, dig yeah she yeah she flirts so she can dig up some dirt find to with in a way to discredit uh anthony Heald's character and she does it marvelously so although i don't understand how knowing the room number of his office helps her find it from the outside of the building anyway she climbs in through a window from the outside of the building yeah Anyway, uh, this is also happening while uh, Jake Brigance's wife and daughter are out of town, and he's feeling really frustrated. Their marriage is a little shaky, although at the very beginning, it seems really, really strong. And then mm. I guess once things start to go on and she's feeling less safe at home, she takes off with the daughter to stay with her parents, which was smart because they burned the freaking yeah. house down. And... Uh, He's hanging around with Ellen Roark all the time. And, and they're both sweating. They're both sweating. And drinking. Very, very much. Uh, Harry Rex, Oliver Platt's character, mentions how like he's about to have an affair with her. He's like, he tells Jake, he's like, all the things that are going on. He's like, Jake, listen to me. Your marriage is on the rocks. You're about to have an affair. Your career's in ruins if you're lucky. And if you're not, you're dead. Don't get me wrong, my friend. What you put into this case, you even inspired me, and I'm, I'm uninspirable. Do everyone a favor, though. Drop the case. Oliver Platt is he's so, so good in this. Good. He's so good. He's got his what? seersucker suit. His you know classic his, Mercedes convertible. His accent that he has, like his that that dripping accent, he's so good. Is oh so God. Louisiana, and yeah. yeah, I mean Oliver Platt is great. And look, ready to rumble. Oliver Platt is great in that. So he's he's awesome. I love yes. Oliver Platt. I met him at a screening of um, Pieces of April. Oh, that wow. little Katie Holmes joint. That's a good movie. Patricia Clarkson. Yeah. yeah. Who else is that? Like, was that Bokeem Woodbine? Uh, oh, I don't know. No. Uh, I just remember Patricia Clarkson, no, 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 no. Kitty Holmes, yeah. and uh, Oliver Platt. So, yeah, uh, he was doing a Q&A screening of that, and I met him afterwards. Cool. Uh, lovely, lovely guy. So, yeah, so Roark kind of comes in at this time when Jake is going through all this stuff, and she's like his one ally and sounding board and... 
they they come so close to getting together but they never do there's actually like a a real good moment where they're at the office and she's like you want me to stay and he's like yeah i want you to stay and that's why you should leave yeah so and that when she leaves is when she gets kidnapped by the clan and um gets you know tied up and kind of left out for the bugs and animals to eat her and there, there's the one, uh, I don't know if we ever find out his name, Mickey Mouse, the guy who's like in the clan, but helps them out. Wait, we do because we see him at one. I don't know if we ever. Yeah, I don't know if we ever find out his name. We yeah. see him at one point without his without the hood on. Like we see his face, but it, yeah, it, he like calls the Brigance's house and tells them like to get out, you know, and things like that. And uh, he is the one that goes back and gets roark off the tree and takes her to the hospital and stuff so it's like i don't know if he's implanted into that group unwillingly you know kind of like reluctant and we never know he could be an undercover fed we yeah we we really don't know although i guess the madison county branch is new so yeah i'm trying to remember if he was just one of the guys who was in the like confederate flag basement when uh, he's handing out the um, the brochures to join the clan. <laughs> For some reason, I thought brochure, and I was just, just imagining bro, a couple of sure. bro, bro. You want to sure. join the clan? Bro, Sign this. Sure. Bro, yeah. So, uh, yeah, because he has to get like five people to join. So it's like, uh, it's Kiefer, the dude with the long hair, who's a piece of garbage. You guys, um, I got to bring Fiverr. They, I got to bring Fiverr. They don't let me do my five minutes. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. KKK um, comedy. Jeez. Uh, so yeah, KKK sucks. So anyway, yeah, agreed. Uh, so anyway, that's that's Roark's character, and. Uh, you know, we. Th- I think the last we see of her is she's in the hospital recovering. She's like, they yeah. didn't break anything. That's not, you know, it's not going to f- get fixed or something. And but then she goes, she's going to old old Miss. Uh, so oh, right, yeah. I assume she returns for the fall semester, assuming that they're not one hundred percent remote, which they wouldn't yeah. be because it was the 90s so actually he the book he wrote the book in the late 80s so i think like actually the the sequel to the book takes place in 1990 oh yeah yeah time for mercy and it involves a a kid again um yeah a a lawyer who's like yeah representing Mm -hmm. a kid i I didn't get the full well jake brigance being that lawyer yeah so so i'm trying to think if there's any character i mean we didn't talk too much about donald sutherland's character the mentor uh, who also hooks him up with um, Dr. Tyrell Bass. Oh, my God. M. Emmett Walsh, character actor extraordinaire. Yeah. So good at being drunk in this. And then when he's mm-hmm. on the stand, oh, my God. And they break him. Oh, they break right, him. Right. So he is discredited, which I don't think that this really discredits him. It just is a knock on his character because he was uh, convicted of a statutory rape. Yeah. It, but the thing is, like, he's not discredited in the way that Dr. Roadheaver is discredited, which is right. like, so in your 11 years of doing this, you've done 46 trials like this. You haven't said that one person is insane. But how come this one guy who you said wasn't uh, insane was then ultimately judged not guilty 
in terms of insanity and is now being treated for the past 10 years at your clinic. So it's like, that is a great way to discredit somebody. And it's oh, like, he's got yeah. this smarmy look on his face the whole time until he's just like broken. Oh and, yeah. That's done great. For. It's, it's really great. satisfying. It's very satisfying. But oh, yeah. the, the Tyrell Bass thing is like, you know, it's a knock on his character, not on his ability to fairly, you know, judge somebody's level of sanity, which, as we know, he was of full, you know, sound mind when he did what he did. Well, that's the and that's the, the you know, the big the big theme of the of the movie is they're deciding at the time, did he know the difference between right yeah. and wrong? And yes, he did. Did he do the right thing? Jeez, it's almost like his name should have been Nelson Wright, W-R-I-G-H-T, on the cusp of wrong and right. Oh, yeah, nice, <laughs> nice. Oh. Uh, for anybody who didn't listen to our Flatliners episode, that's what that's about. Yes, if you really, really, really want to get that reference and you haven't listened to the Flatliners <laughs> episode, do it after you finish this. Yeah. So I made a couple of connections here. Okay. Now... Because I'm thinking about John Grisham's novels, and in the past several years, we, we've we come to this thinking of certain universes and how the Marvel universe, and even before that, well, not before that, but uh, Stephen King with right, his yeah. Dark Tower series where he brings together characters from, from different novels of his. So there's kind of a Stephen King universe. So I'm thinking of the John Grisham novels, which are all, at least all of the legal thrillers. Like, he's mm -hmm. written some that are not legal thrillers, and they may or may not be... I did not look into those, honestly. So if we take the John Grisham legal legal thrillers, Time to Kill Firm, Client, Pelican Brief, Chamber, Runaway Jury, even Gingerbread Man, Rainmaker... Oh, Runaway Jury. A Runaway Jury, yes. That was the other movie that, that I couldn't John remember Cusack. For. Good movie. John Cusack, Gene okay. Hackman, Dustin Hoffman, Richard yeah. Weiss. Laura's a big fan of that one. I'm sure we'll talk about it. So is Alicia. Um, yeah. Um, so I'm thinking, I'm like, how is it possible that in the legal world of the southeastern United States that no, none so. of I'm these people would interact that. like do, like doesn't like does does uh darby shaw from pelican brief does she go to is she a tulane or old miss <laughs> i uh i think she's, she's a tulane, at actually. tulane yeah yeah so but i'm like like why wouldn't there be interaction between why wouldn't jake brigant's you know, work on a case with, uh, you know, whatever, one of the lawyers from Runaway Jury with Dustin Hoffman. Um, you know, why wouldn't, you know, Mitch McDear goes to Harvard. Is he the only Harvard-educated lawyer mm -hmm. in the Grishamverse? I don't think so. Also, it goes, like, you can also go into the past, and I was... It, it kind of occurred to me because when they're talking about is it uh, Roy Lee Cobb, the Nikki Katz character, yeah, the Billy Ray Cobb, the the main Billy, oh, rapist, right, 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 Billy Ray Cobb, who they said that he was he had been arrested previously on um, drug charges, yeah, selling dope, selling dope, but that it was handled by. I'm looking for the for the quote. I have it in here somewhere.
some Memphis lawyer handled that. So, and I'm thinking, well, why would a Memphis lawyer handle a, a like small time, you know, drug, like Mm -hmm. what's he selling? But what if he's on like, you know, the bottom end of a chain that starts with the mob, the same mob that's represented Mm -hmm. in the firm by Mitch McDear's firm. And perhaps there's a connection to the family, the crime family running out of New Orleans, of which Barry the Blade Maldonado is a member. Barry the Blade. Uncle Barry the Blade Maldonado. (laughs) I swear, Uncle Johnny. So, uh, so yeah, no, that's it's interesting to consider. And by the way, for anybody, well, nobody listening can can see Dan right now. If he had access to yarn, there would be strings of yarn going all across the room he's in, <laughs> connecting uh, John Grisham novels to one another. I'll, I'll I'll post a picture of it. Yeah, I mean, I <laughs> he has a yeah. whiteboard. He has a whiteboard. Well, because you have you have all of these characters in a pretty limited set of locations. Uh-huh. So and so here's my my proposal because a time to kill like we said there's a uh sequel book that's been written uh that's being published soon and there is a stage play based on okay. it. The client was not only a movie, it was a short short-lived TV series right, starring right, Joe yeah, Beth yeah. Williams as Reggie Love. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's been other continuations of these stories but i'm thinking it would be an just interesting like a series Uh a series just a straight up like nothing nothing too inventive creative a straight up like southern based legal drama Mm -hmm. that in that brings in sweaty law sweaty law (laughs) Yeah, sweaty law. I'm. I don't know. I'm trying to think of like you know other, other. I don't know characters to to string together. But just look at what you have, and I think if you take, you know, it's a great way to employ some writers and just say, hey, and read all these John Grisham novels and. Yeah. But like backstories, like Lucian Wilbanks as as a as a young man, as a young lawyer, mm-hmm. there there's right. a lot of there's a, there would be a lot of approaches, a lot of ways to do it. Yeah, well, I mean, clearly there's a lot of backstory with Lucian. Uh, there's the idea that he and uh, Brenda Fricker's character Ethel, uh, who was a secretary for 20 years, that they had some sort of romantic entanglement. Um, or at least that's the theory that Brigance and uh, oh, she and did Harry Rex have a lot. <laughs> so, well, she's a God-fearing Christian. She uh, she would never do such a thing. Come on, lover boy, let's get to court. Lucian thinks the two hyenas just might get off. You saw Lucian? Where? Where? How is he? Has he been eating any better? Just curious. Um, Miss Ethel, refresh my recollection. How long were you and Lucian together for, exactly? We were never together. I was his secretary for 20 years. Come on, old girl. You can tell us, you know. Well, he was your boyfriend. I am an upstanding, God-fearing, respectable Southern woman with unimpeachable morals who has been happily married for 27 years. And I have never had or ever will have any boyfriend. And if I did, it certainly would not be that old pickled scoundrel, Lucian Wilbanks. She did him, oh yeah, a lot. So... 
there's there's a huge history with his character and i think that there's a wealth of stuff that you could deal with with that character and not to mention the characters in John Grisham novels who either go into witness protection. So imagine you've got this this new character that's invented and up oh, end of season. It's really Mark Sway yeah. uh, or, you know, whatever, although they're in Arizona. So but you could have an adult Mark Sway who yeah. comes back and he's an attorney. You've got, you know, the reveal that someone's really because Mitch McDear, I think, goes into witness protection at the end of the firm. I, I would know. I think sleep by that point. I think Darby Shaw of the Pelican Brief just kind of like goes off the grid. I don't think she goes formally into witness protection. Yeah, I remember at the end of that, she the idea is that she gets put onto a plane and then she will tell them where to take her when they're in the air. Right. Like something like that. So there's a lot, uh, you know, the various character characters that could secretly be other characters in their witness protection things like you, like you, the cliffhanger season one cliffhanger is like, oh, I'm really Mitch McDear. <laughs> and he whips off a mask and it's Tom Cruise. What? So, uh, but imagine I would also, that. I would Get also Tom like Cruise back as the character. Sure. I would also like a, uh, a Harry, a Harry Rex Vonner series. Well, you could do, look like you could totally like Shonda well, rhymes it and spin off and have separate Grisham or just well, Dan. What? What are you thinking? I'm thinking Harry Rex. And Reggie Love are both divorce attorneys. Is Reggie Love a divorce attorney? On the door to her office, it's about it's divorce uh, and child custody. Uh, yes, that's yes, what yes, her yes. thing is. So if you have the law offices of uh, of Vonner and Love, <laughs> she's the only woman who'd be able to put up with his crap. I think I so. Think. I think that that would be a really great series. <laughs> Vonner and Love. Sure. That I mean, what? What? Yeah. Why not? Why not? Rec, Rexy, Rexy time. I don't, yeah, I don't. I don't no. know. I, <laughs> oh, so, definitely so, not. So you. So you're proposing like a series, but a series that is that is maybe maybe you you'd have other characters come through, but kind of the nexus would be that the law offices of of honor and love. Yeah, sure. And, you know, and it's just like clearly Harry Rex is going to bring up his his old buddy Jake Brigance. Well, yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. It would be how would you uh, bring divorce like divorce attorneys into these other types of cases? Like would would Jake Bergantz have, you know, Harry Rex come and testify? Well, here's the thing is they they're divorce attorneys, but clearly Harry Rex gets involved with this, you know, this lawsuit that's going on, which he is reluctant to do, which he is reluctant to do. And then you have Reggie Love, who's doing a case that's not at all related to divorce or child custody. So. True. Good good point. Point so they point well made. Yeah. So and it'd I, be funny it'd be funny if like well, all they want to do is be divorce attorneys, but they keep they keep on getting pulled away to do these like major huge like mob or KKK related cases. <laughs> and 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 they ju- all like all they want to do is be divorce attorneys. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> Just what I thought. I, just well, what the, I the thing is, their divorce, their divorce attorneys, in order to fund their true passion, 
you know, standing up for the little guy. Because, uh, yeah. you know, Mark Sway pays her, what, like two bucks to be oh, his yeah. lawyer? So they basically do divorce litigation so that they can make enough money to, to do pro bono it. cases. Yeah. Or maybe, maybe it's just that Harry Rex does all of the divorce work oh. so that Reggie, <laughs> I don't know. So... I was I was curious because I'm like, I think Kenneth Branagh's character from The Gingerbread Man was a divorce lawyer. I oh, don't yeah. think he was a divorce lawyer, but he is divorced. So okay. imagine that's one of their... Maybe they, were, maybe they represented him. Yeah. 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 So I so many... Oh, Tom Berenger is, is in that. Right. Tom Berenger, yeah. Daryl Hannah. Wow. That was a good one. I got to check that out again. These, these Grisham adaptations always have tremendous casts. Mae Whitman. Really? Yes, a young May okay. Whitman. And oh, this was from 1998. Yeah, very cool. So, so I I think that that kind of concludes the the first part of what we're going to be dealing with. The second part's not going to be as long, but uh, that was the pre-trial that the pre-trial. we just had. We yeah. just had the jury selection, <laughs> and next we go into trial, baby. Yeah. So we're going to take a break, <laughs> and when we come back, we're going to be joined by. My wife, Laura, My wife. who's going to be uh, talking us through kind of the legal accuracies and liberties taken with these movies, uh, kind of giving the the perspective of somebody who has spent time in Memphis dealing with a lot of uh, criminal justice cases. And um, also somebody who has practiced sweaty law sweaty law yeah and uh if we're lucky she'll also tell us a story that involves the kkk in memphis <sighs> well i mean there's no doubt we will we don't have to go on a far tangent to get there so yeah. <laughs> all right so uh stay tuned we'll be back with yes. laura richardson attorney at law and now the court will go to recess uh mr brookhouse you continue in this performance I'll hold you in contempt. Is that understood? Overruled. Any more of that nonsense? And you're all out of here. Cross-examination, Mr. Begant. Overruled. Overruled. Uh, this, uh, better be good, Mr. Begant. And we're back. Yeah. Thank you for bearing with us during that excruciatingly long period of time. Pardon me, I've had wine and a our full recess, day. our extended recess. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we are joined with us by past guest. You might remember her from our soap dish episode or our Running Man episode. Laura Richardson, Esquire, is here. A very special guest on a very special episode. Sure, Laura. Uh, would you mind giving our audience an idea of why we're bringing you back for this particular episode? Because I was so good on the previous episodes, they just had to have me back. Also, I'm a lawyer. Because there are... <laughs> Excuse me, Dan. There are so many need, wonderful names I need in to, the cast. I need to call Reggie Love uh, because I need a divorce attorney. <laughs> Ooh, that's painful. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, no. This is so awkward that I'm here for this. Oh, uh, Dan. <laughs> Save our marriage. I feel so weird. Harry yeah. Rex. Okay, guys. Let, Harry Rex. Let's, let's talk. Yeah, before you start talking, to, before you call Vonner and Love. Yeah, Vonner. The love is Vonner. Uh, yeah, so Laura, could you give us uh, an actual taste of, of why why we have you here today? Yeah, so um, I am a lawyer, a real life lawyer with a JD and all that fun stuff. And I also um, worked in Memphis for a while. So you may know that as a place where many of the John Grisham novels take place or have characters from. 
Uh, so I am a twofer here. I am a John Grisham, well, fan as well, and then also a lawyer. Yeah, we're going to get into that in a little bit. But I was thinking that it would be really cool. We teed up earlier that there were a couple of stories that uh, we wanted to know about. So clearly in A Time to Kill, there is a big KKK presence. And you have a story that, and before I go any further, it has a a good ending. Yes. So a, a KKK story. Would you mind letting us know about that? I don't think Dan's heard this. Yeah. So, um, okay. I was a, a clerk in Memphis, Tennessee in 2012 to 2013. And while I was there, uh, the city council of Memphis decided to rename three parks that had previously had names associated with the Confederal Army or KKK members. So there was Confederate Park, Nathan Bedford Forest Park, and Jefferson Davis Park. Big names. This part is hearsay that's a legal term (laughs) uh but i understand that there had been an uneasy peace between the government of memphis and the people who basically kept up these the confederate statues at these parks where the memphis council would kind of just like leave it alone um and it was just kind of an unspoken hey neither side is gonna like make a big deal of this but like keep it you know chill and I understand, again, hearsay, that at some point, the Sons of the Confederacy or whoever actually maintained those parks took out the old signs and replaced them with like giant signs that said, Confederate Park, you know, Jefferson Davis Park. And it kind of blew that truce up. And so the city council of Memphis decided to rename those parks. As a result of that, and so this is again 2013, right? It, it this feels a little bit like <laughs> what's happening now, except for seven years ago. They, you know, made these plans to rename the parks, um, and then the KKK decided that they were going to have a rally to protest, and it was, I think, put together by the KKK of North Carolina. I, I don't know, like some random state was like, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna go to Memphis, Tennessee, and we're going to have the biggest Klan rally like in the last decade. And there's going to be thousands of Klan members. And it was, you know, kind of making people really nervous because there had actually been a Klan rally in Memphis in 98 and that had kind of erupted into violence and um, protesters were arrested and so people were really nervous about it, um, and it created a lot of strange situations. Uh, like, for example, one of the local Crip, well, the local Crip gang, Crips gang, and one of the local KKK groups <laughs> jointly released a statement saying that they were protesting the KKK protest, which is beyond bizarre. So basically, like one of the local KKK groups said, we're not into this KKK rally. So comes upon time. They were lowercase Ks. They were like, eh, we like we K, but we don't KKK, you know? We're like a one to two K. <laughs> two K and a half. They're more of a Ku Klux club. Yeah. They're like, we like the name, we like the robes, we don't love the racism and the yeah. Anyhow. We don't like to make a big thing of it. We're really low key. We're the new clan. We're more um, of a living room, sit around and chat, less of a march burn it's crosses. It's a social club. 
Yeah. A social club. Yeah, exactly. Please, but please, I am sorry. Please <laughs> go on. That was one I just couldn't keep in. No, I mean, you had to. So so anyhow, it gets to the day. Um, the KKK show up. There's like 60 KKK. They're not allowed to wear masks. And they're in this like area between courthouses. And the Memphis police are there. Mostly black because Memphis is a city that's, I think, 62% black. And there are more cops than there are protesters. And they create this like circle around the protesters. So it's a bunch of like essentially black policemen encircling this tiny group of protesters. How many would you say there were? Yeah, like 61 protesters. Like something like that. Like between 60 and 70, more like 60. And like Klansmen? Yes. Or like Klansmen okay. in the robes. And some neo-Nazis too. And the police were protecting them. Yes. But the, they were the circle of protection around them. Exactly. There were more protesters than there were clan members. The protesters were really peaceful. They could okay. they couldn't hear the clan members. And the the my favorite part, the clan members had brought a megaphone and they ran out of batteries. So they were like shouting <laughs> Things like white power and no one could hear them. So just like, a- oh, my God, John, I'm sorry, John, we were talking before about Django Unchained. Right. And again, I'm thinking of this with Jonah Hill. And, oh, my God. Um, the eye holes. Oh, who else is? Yeah. The whole thing with the eye holes and like whose wife made the hoods. Yeah. And oh, oh, my God. All right. I'm sorry. Please. It was farce. Continue. It was absolutely farce. Like the fact that the protesters had, they couldn't even be mad at anything because they couldn't hear the clan members. And it was rain. It was like a miserable day. It had been a beautiful week. And then that day during that protest, it was just like torrential rain on these people who had the saddest little clan rally of all time. So Laura, what was it like to clerk for a judge in Memphis? It was an education. Mm-hmm. I mean, more than just getting to see, you know, how litigation works and getting the access to the courthouses and kind of learning about process. Uh, the thing that was really interesting for me was being a white woman from the Northwest and living in a Southern area that has a predominantly black population. And so it was just a totally different world for me culturally and, and in every other way. And you know, when you're in a courthouse, you see this weird kind of cross section of people from Memphis. And so that was what we saw. And so there were lots of black defendants, white defendants, a ton of sovereign citizens. So Mm. I don't know if anyone, if you two are aware of that, but essentially these are people who think that the federal government does not have any control over them. It's very bizarre when you read into like what their actual beliefs are. Uh, and John, was there not a, an episode of Mr. Show? Yep, I was just going to say the same thing. There is a, a Mr. Show oh, sketch. I, I thought so. It, and it's like a uh, an Olympic style ceremony for people who are sovereign states. Yeah, so it's like they yeah. have declared their own nation and it's there. Laura, I, I don't know why I haven't shown this to you yet because I know you bring up sovereign citizens oh, I bring a lot. It up all the time. Yeah. There's a Mr. Show sketch well, for everything. And we are back with the opening ceremonies of the Independent Nations Games. This is exciting, Chuck. Sure is. You know, the FBI's new policy of conceding to separatists 
has led to the formations of so many little countries, and that's led to these wonderful games. They are wonderful, Bob. These are new countries. They're small countries. Some of them have no more than two or three people, but their competitive spirit surely looms large. Indeed it does. Uh, joining us now is the ruler of New Freeland and also a recent emigrate to these United States, Mountain Dougie. Good to have you, Mountain. Good to have you. I love this country. <laughs> <laughs> so do we. All right, Indeed. back to the athletes. Representing Freemania, that is Chester Hasbro. He'll be competing in three events. Chester Hasbro, the discus, the pole vault, and the common law wife swap. Always a very important event. He's yes, a good indeed. man. He is a good man. I'm sure he is. And next to him, we've got Gary, better be wary, Vendemir from the New Republic of Gary. See the G on the flag. Gary's going to be competing in the tumbling, the threatening, and the 400-meter food hoard. Mm. Now, Gary's from the state of Montana. Oh, they're all from Montana, Bob. Oh, don't tell them that. <laughs> but I mean, living in living in Oregon. Oh yeah, I think don't oh, don't tons. you also? Be, I mean, we were even because we ended up drive when we drove back. Uh, we had been down in, in Manzanita, and uh, we were taken. Our GPS took us on a detour uh, through a more rural area uh -huh. than uh, than the regular route, kind of up I five. If you're familiar with your west coast highways but you know and we really saw you know it, it very it was different and this is of course while you know all of the the the, the protests were happening in, yeah. in portland and we're driving through and there's all these you know every different type of trump 2020 banner but also i just driving through and i was talking to alicia my wife who for those who or don't know her she's from belgium so we kind of we're talking about how you know it's really not that far outside of cities like portland and seattle oh yeah where you have a lot of not uh, of n not just you know white nationalist groups but also sovereign citizens who you know well you're you're more uh apt to or able to describe hardly because honestly what they ascribe to is so cuckoo bananas that it's actually hard for me to comprehend. But it's funny because you're right. There is a huge sovereign citizen movement. Um, but I never really got access to like what that meant from a process standpoint until I worked for a judge. Mm -hmm. And then you see it in action. And they basically, I mean, some of them come in and they're like filing a hundred motions saying, you don't have jurisdiction over me, federal government. Yes. And <laughs> I, there was one where it was just like, I can't remember any details, nor would I tell you if I could, but essentially it was a person talking about how there's like a bond on each of us and that, you know, when the government got rid of gold and that they put a bond in each individual and it, it, like, it's so rambling. I, I read it four times and I just couldn't even understand it, but wow. it is a, it is the basis of a belief system that a lot of people share and it goes through prisons. Like, wildfire i mean prisoners file oh. these motions all the time oh, because yeah that makes sense yeah yeah but it's interesting because as because they are using the very system that they say totally they are not a part yes. of and as you say like they're filing motions i'm like so they are participating in the thing they say they ha want to have no part of right and, and it's funny because i think i i if I recall correctly, sovereign citizenism, citizenism, sovereign citizenism, Citizen patrol, Citizen patrol. 
<laughs> is is very um like heavily tied in with white nationalism or white supremacy. Oh, yeah, I bet. But it's yeah. funny because like it started there, but when it went through the jails, it became more diverse. So you had all kinds of people, whether they're white or black or Hispanic, filing motions based upon the sovereign citizen argument. That call, has its roots in white call supremacy. Call John Grisham. He's got to be writing about this. Do, do, do. Hi, John. It's me, Laura. We're sorry. You have reached a number that has been disconnected or is no longer in service. I don't have his number. <laughs> I, I'm going to put in the like, do, do, do. You have dialed the wrong number. John, well, and John? I'm, I'm looking at... So, and I was curious because I am in Oregon, the Bundy's, the Bundy's. that Bundy standoff. Yeah. 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 Those um, freaking guys. Yeah. Wasn't that a sovereign citizen? Oh yeah. Yeah. Deal. Citizenship. Yeah. And you do get a lot of filings in Oregon too, even as a civil litigator in Oregon, sometimes civil litigants would file, um, basically sovereign claims. So in, in Memphis, would it be a lot of like Appalachians not really. That's no. so Memphis is really a an urban area and it's right next to Arkansas. So it's not really Appalachian. It's really more urban. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I didn't know if if it would be, you know, people from throughout the state no. coming. So it's, and it's having regional. These cases yeah. Heard. So okay. it's definitely regional. Oh, so Mem- so Memphisians, uh, if you will. Yes, people from western Tennessee, including Mem- Memphisians. Memphians. Excuse oh, me, Memphians. Memphians. My apologies. I've I've been. I was at Memphis you, for Rube. a weekend <laughs> once. Yeah. No. I I. You know, it, it was it was raining, uh, pretty hard. So we didn't get to see much of Memphis. Did get to go to Graceland, which highly recommend for anyone visiting Memphis. Lived there for a year. Never made it. We're, we'll have to go. Oh my we'll God. have to go. I know. Yeah, you have to see it to believe it. Graceland is freaking crazy. All right. <laughs> and not to be Memphis tourism board, but I do want to say really quickly, Memphis is one of the my favorite cities on earth. I've never fallen so hard for a place. It is an amazing place to visit. There's so much history there. The people are so kind. And it, it does sometimes feel like you're living in a John Grisham novel in the good way. Okay. How? But so explain. So as a John Grisham fan and a lawyer in Memphis, what like what was kind of the crossover? What does he really capture? Well, he captures the community of of the legal profession. So one of the things that you'll see in his books is there's really like these cast of characters, right? And it's judges and lawyers and clerks. And and they all seem to live in the same world and interact in a way that almost feels fictional because you're like, well, how could they possibly run into each other this many times? But when you're in Memphis, you see that this is a small community in which they have a lot of really close relationships. So you'll go out to lunch and you're downtown and you'll like run into the mayor of Memphis and you'll run into like a judge. And it's that kind of community that kind of makes you realize, oh, this is a a city that's like mid-sized city, but it feels like a small town. And is that like so the way that it, not- I just want to know, is that also to your knowledge, the way that it is in other cities like that in the South? I can only speak for Memphis, but I, I can't, I can't imagine that there isn't that feeling other places too. And I've practiced now in three cities, Portland, Los Angeles, and Memphis, and I've not found that anywhere but Memphis. Yeah. The reason why I ask is because in A Time to Kill, you know, 
Kevin Spacey's character, who's the DA, like he's very well aware of who Jake Brigance is. And he's like, isn't he still in law school? Like he talks about him like he, you know, knows a ton of stuff about him. Haley's hired an attorney, Jake Brigance. (laughs) (laughs) And today ain't even my birthday. Brigance couldn't tie his own tie without that old drunk Will Banks. Well, he's telling the press he never lost a murder case. Yeah, well, he's never tried one against me, has he? But, of course, he is at a much higher level. Why would he know about this peon? But if that's kind of like the way that things run... Well, and Time to Kill is a much smaller place than Memphis. But, but yes, I mean, I think there is that... It is a small, tight-knit legal community that you have the same people running in and you run into them over and over again. Yeah. Well, what I was saying is because I feel like Kevin Spacey's character, I don't think that he's like a Madison County person. You know, he alludes to, you know, having aspirations of becoming mayor in the, uh, not mayor, governor well, in governor, the near future. Governor, yeah. yeah. Does anyone in a John Grisham book not have aspirations <laughs> of becoming governor? I just want to ask. Well, Myself, does any does any district attorney or U.S. attorney in a Grisham book not have some type of nickname like Reverend, Reverend Roy yeah. or Governor? Yeah, and so what I'm curious to know though, how much interaction would you say you or other Memphis lawyers would have had with, let's say, uh, New Orleans based lawyers? not much personally, but then again, I was only there for a year. I think if you had someone who practiced regionally and had cases all over, you'd see them quite frequently. So, so it would not be unrealistic to say that characters from multiple John Grisham stories would, you, you got to see Dan's whiteboard having, <laughs> Oh, I'll show you my whiteboard. Oh dear. This will be on Instagram. Oh no. Yeah. That's uh Dan's whole John Grisham verse. Uh, theories just questions and and by the way and it's and probably since i took the picture of it last there were questions on here that have been answered oh because i had i had some questions and of course i you know did some researching to describe this visually to everybody it looks like dan is chasing a serial killer we talked about it earlier okay just let me make sure i i am i am chasing a serial but more in the vein of a television series yes so, uh, Laura, before we... And I hope it's killer. <laughs> before we talk uh, more about your love for the Grishams, uh, I want to talk a little bit more about your experiences in the South. And what we didn't talk about earlier, Dan, is, you know, well, well, we touched on how if A Time to Kill came out now, it would be given the, like, green book eye roll. It would be green booked. It would be green booked. Especially since there are movies that have a similar tone and vibe that are that feel much more appropriate, like Just Mercy. Just, just I was thinking that. Yeah, as well, and just I'm surprised Mercy. we didn't talk yeah. about it until this point. Uh, Laura, have you seen no. Just Mercy? I have not, but okay, I, I should, believe I've read it. one of the books he's written, and someone I, I know went seen it yet. You either. haven't seen it? It's excellent. It's Michael B. Jordan, first I mean, of all. So, uh, hello. Come on. But it is about, you know, Jamie Foxx plays a death row inmate who uh, Michael B. Jordan's character is trying to get off of death row. And uh, it made me think a lot about a particular experience that you had in Alabama, if you're willing to talk about that. 
Yeah. So again, I'm not getting into details, oh. but um, I was part of a pro bono team that was um, doing the appeals for somebody who had been convicted of a capital crime and sentenced to death. And so we uh, went out to Alabama and uh, were there for a couple of days for an evidentiary hearing. And it was really interesting because I went to law school to be a public defender for mentally ill juveniles. Yeah, that's pretty niche. Um, but I definitely had this social justice bent when I went to law school. And of course, then I ended up becoming a corporate attorney. Yeah, for hey. a tech company. Um, and before that, like a big firm lawyer. But, you know, that was always really important to me. Got to pay the bills. Well, and <laughs> yeah. Uh also going to law school after the great financial breakdown of 2008. Eight. Yes. Um, but I think, you know, so in, in law school, you know, I did the Supreme Court clinic and I was uh, doing work for the Innocence Project and I went to Juvenile Hall and ran one of those clinics. And uh, then you represent somebody on death row and that's kind of the accumulation, right, of your legal education and your social justice bent on the world. And then, um, you know, doing the service that you need to do to your community as a lawyer. But it was a really emotionally difficult process. And you become close to this person and it doesn't, it's not about whether they've committed the crime that they're accused of or not. It's about, you know, were they given a fair trial and did people follow the right process? Um, and did they have a fair shake? And our client is black, um, was black. I guess he's not my client anymore. But, you know, the question is, did he get a fair trial being a black man? in the South. And some of the things that are brought up in A Time to Kill are really, a lot of it's not totally accurate, but some of the stuff that was accurate is the all-white juries. I mean, that's right. very common. Um, additionally, Alabama is one of the states that still had, um, as of a couple of years ago, uh, you didn't have to have unanimous jury for the death sentence. And so there's mm. still a couple, well, I should say there were a couple states that still had non-unanimous juries for serious crimes, Oregon being one of them. But the Supreme Court a couple of years ago um, or a year ago had uh, said that you, you can't have non-unanimous juries for severe crimes, at least. Um, so I think now wow. the states that still had that have um, have changed those laws. But you think about things like, yeah, you know, someone can live in a predominantly black community and still have an all white jury. And the way that this ends up happening, right, is you get a jury pool and then there are preemptory challenges and then there are challenges for cause. And the preemptory challenges can be used on anybody for no reason. And so if you want to have a jury that's in favor of the death penalty for a black defendant, um, a common method that prosecutors use is to get rid of all the black members of the jury. And there's a court case or a Supreme Court case that was decided, um, I don't remember when, but it's, it's basically it's uh, something versus Batson. And so when you, when you want to challenge a jury, um, basically on the basis that jurors were challenged or kept off the jury based on their race or gender or whatever else, you file a, a Batson challenge. But it is really, really hard to prove that race or gender was the reason that a juror was held off right. of a jury. So anyhow, it's not uncommon to have these all-white juries in the South for black defendants. And there's a lot of there are a lot of studies out there that show that you are less likely to get a fair trial 
if you are a black person and have an all white jury. Yeah. How beyond sad, awful is it that this Tim, I'm listening to you say this and I'm thinking, yeah, of course. Right. Yeah. He has Samuel L. Jackson has that line. He says, that's a jury of my peers. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, it's it's crazy that it, it is legal at all to have an imbalance i i think of almost any kind in a jury and, and and i know that there's only so much balance you can achieve or attain in certain parts but i feel like having the most balanced jury as possible ensures it, the truest form of justice possible well and i think person. it's important for people to remember that a lot of laws were passed with the not just with an impact that's disproportionate on black people in America, but for that purpose. So states that had, um, that didn't require unanimous juries, most of them, if you look back at the legislative history, they did that on purpose and it was for racial reasons, racist reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that's part of the reason that the Supreme court, you know, stepped in with Batson as well, talking about how, so many things that make it difficult to be a black defendant are built into our laws. And it is, it is all basically um, like now those laws have a disproportionate impact at the time they were enacted. They had a disproportionate, they had an intent of racism, an intent of discrimination. Mm -hmm. And you can't get rid of that. You can't get rid of the impact of that until you get rid of the law because the law was passed for that reason. And it, to me, it takes me Back to the documentary, The 13th, which I've mentioned before, and I basically don't shut up about because <laughs> that film, uh, which is available to stream on Netflix, also for free on YouTube and I'm sure other outlets, but the amount of information and history that you see just shows how much legislation at the state level at the local level at the state level at the at the federal level is motivated by by race and what she what Ava DuVernay shows in the 13th it, it is basically maintaining slavery and maintaining control yeah. of black people by taking advantage of that clause in the 13th amendment that that uh, you know, citizens, no citizen shall be enslaved by another with the exception of those duly convicted uh, for crimes, or I'm paraphrasing, but that's, you, you know, it's that loophole that basically says, yeah, no, we're going to still have slavery. We're just going to kind of change the requirements and then we're going to put out the conditions so that the people we want to meet those requirements meet those requirements. Well, and I think people, they say that we're in a different society. We know we're colorblind. We don't care about yes. things like race. And, and the thing is that I, I don't think that they don't believe that. I think that they don't understand that if you build a world based upon corrupt, broken structure, that world will reflect that structure and it will be as flawed as what it started with. And you really have to go back to the beginning and reframe things, recreate laws, like think from scratch because everything you've built on top of it has been built upon these discriminatory laws. Yeah. And that kind of goes back to what Samuel L. Jackson's character, what, you know, Carly says uh, to Matthew McConaughey in uh, at the end of A Time to Kill, 
you know, it's like, oh, no, 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 no. This isn't, this doesn't mean that we're equal or that, you know, you, like, he doesn't say that, you know, doesn't mean that you're not racist. It just means that we're in a different place right now. But, yeah. Well, and because Jake benefits from right. representing Carly. Yeah. He's, his, his profile gets, you know, like, he's, oh, totally. isn't he in law school? Well, yeah. So, and it's not yeah, like he's, it's not is, like he's doing it pro bono. He's still taking the money that was collected, you know, to pay for it. I think it said it's like $50,000 or something to pay the legal fees. Yeah. So there's that. I mean, but no, I, Laura, I, I totally, I agree with you. Um, completely. I, I was just, you know, in a, in an exchange on social media talking about how I really think, um, much of our constitution, the language needs to be updated and we, and some things need to be specified and made clear. And there's so much of the language in the legislation that leaves it so open for interpretation that we have discrimination. We have you know things like the uh, uh, Religious Freedom Act, mm-hmm. the thing that that lets you not sell cakes to gay couples. I think really going back to the to the Constitution, which was built for which was built to evolve with society. Why don't we take advantage of that and take what's there? And yeah, I mean, the thing is, it's impossible to make any changes to it because of the process for amending the constitution. Well, we need to change. We need, we need, we need a big overturn, but you need to in, amend the constitution Congress and to amend the constitution. Yeah. And also I'm going to give you a few words that explain exactly why things aren't changing. Person, woman, man, camera, TV. <laughs> if you don't know what I'm talking about, then you haven't been, Reading the news the past no, day. I, I have, I think it's a signal. I think he's sending yeah. a code. I'm trying to think because person P, could that stand for Putin? I don't know. Oh, definitely. Uh, so I, uh, yeah. Yeah. Laura, w- w- as soon as there's an opportunity, when the time is right, we will watch Just Mercy because I think that you're going to really, it's, you know, it's going to be difficult to watch. And of course, it's going to make you, uh, you know, think about a lot of your past experiences and uh, but I think that you'll really appreciate the way that it's done because it's it's an excellent excellent movie and I just want to say like all of these opinions are my own obviously um I don't speak for anybody else but god I'm such a lawyer sometimes um (laughs) but I do want to say even if it's not possible to change the laws, even if we can't change all the laws that were based on discrimination and keeping people out of enjoying the same rights as other people, what we can do is look at the history of those laws and understand what they were done for, understand the impact that they had, and and know that rather than just thinking that the law has always been the law. And if it's the law now, then it must have been passed under the same intent as it was passed now, which is just not true. What I really wanted to ask Laura, and I know, you know, eventually the conversation's going to have to end because you have watched these movies recently. Um, I presume you have not read the books again recently. No, I have not. No. But having watched the movies again recently, and you've said, you know, some things are really accurate, some things are far-fetched. I'm curious, 
because I have some specific questions, but I, I wonder if you wouldn't mind just kind of going through each of the movies and just what stood out to you as like, wow, they nailed that or like, well, that is that would never happen. Well, John and I have talked about the sweaty attorney situation. And right. as, a, <laughs> as an attorney who practiced in Memphis, I can tell you I was pretty sweaty. Yeah, and this is significantly later in time. I mean, A Time to Kill, well, Time to Kill wasn't Memphis, but A Time to Kill was, it takes place in the 80s. So we're still talking, we're talking, you know, 30 years later. Yeah, I mean. Still still sweaty in the South. Still sweaty in the South. So that was accurate. <laughs> um, <laughs> just drenched in sweat. Well, I'm always curious to know about the portrayal of actual like courtroom courtroom behavior and how judges respond to the judges and and i will say you did make a comment when we were watching a time to kill about the cross-examination of i think it was one of the expert witnesses it was the expert witness for the state it was the doctor road heaver yes sure <laughs> names no thank you most yes. court appearances <laughs> and i'm not talking about trials necessarily are pretty tame like tame to just straight up boring and that's not a knock on anyone who's in a court it's not a tv show it's not like supposed to be exciting and glamorous it is a job where you have a judge who's doing their job and lawyers are doing their jobs a court stenographer who's doing their job um trial of course it, it can be very colorful so that part of it i don't think is totally outrageous um i think some of the things that matthew mcconaughey was doing was really pushing his luck with the judge. And the judge said, you know, I'm going to hold you in contempt. And uh, I think it'd be a pretty bold lawyer to push it that many times with the judge. Not that it's, it's never happened. It. I'll allow it. <laughs> Overruled. I want to hear what he says. Sus, sus, not so fast, Mr. Buckley. <laughs> um, You know, and some judges feel, I think, very like circuit masters, right? Circus masters? No, that's not a ringleaders. Ringleaders. Ringmasters. 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 We got there. We got there. Okay. Ring ringmasters. Right. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and that's girls, it. children of all yeah, ages. Yeah, but I think yeah. other judges are just like, look, this is a trial. We're just trying to get through this. Um, these are people live. Like, let's not mess around. Um, so I don't think it was accurate. Or inaccurate. Um, I definitely think, <laughs> like, some of the stuff he did in that to me, a judge would be like, this is a mistrial. Like you can't unprejudice the jury after you say something like that. The police officer who had his leg amputated says, "I would have killed them." Yeah. And I'm like, "Let him free." Yeah, I'm like, that would be a mistrial. Yeah, to me, you can't come back from that. But it's such a great moment. It's a really great it is moment. A great no, moment. No, no, no. It's a great Hollywood moment. It's a yeah, bad um, trial moment. Well, also in a time to kill. The entire thing seems to take place in, I don't know, five days. Capital trials take a very long time. Um, and this kind of leaves well, out. So they, they talk about this motion for change of venue, right? right. So that is a very common mm. motion that would be filed in a capital crime because you have a lot of coverage of the capital crime and you want to avoid a jury that's been too kind of persuaded by the coverage. Um, but the pretrial motions, I mean... Sometimes there's 10, 20, 30, 40 pretrial motions. And so you're talking about days, weeks to get through that. So, I mean, you know, it's a movie. You can't show like day 29, day 60. Um, 
Yeah, you can. I mean, you can. <laughs> you can actually put up a number that says day 29. Um, but really quickly, going back to what John was talking about with cross-examining the state's um, doctor. So this made me laugh because, honestly, it is really hard to find a doctor to testify for the defense, especially a good doctor who will testify for the amount of money that you have. Right. Well, I mean, the doctor that they have testified for the defense is the drunk buddy of the mentor. (laughs) But that's not uncommon. It's actually really difficult as a defendant to find a doctor or other kind of forensic expert to testify on your behalf because most um, for example, most coroners are employed by the state, right? So they are the people who have the most experience with dead bodies and forensic evidence, right? So they're not going to testify Dexter. for the defense because it's a conflict. Right. Mm. Yeah, there's not a lot of freelance coroners out there. Exactly. And then also... Dexter. <laughs> Dexter. Um, Dexter. Dexter. <laughs> Why not? Why not? Dexter. 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 I think that Jiminy Glick ever uh, interviewed... No. Dexter, no. the serial killer. Um, he's a real person, right? Dan's hunting him on his whiteboard. Tell me about blood spatter. <laughs> blood spatter? Yeah. What's that about? It's very artistic, isn't it? Reminds me of a painting by Jackson Pollock. <laughs> this Laura, are you not familiar with Jiminy Glick? Oh, yeah. Now I see it. Kiefer. <laughs> Kiefer. Kiefer. Okay, so... so all right. It, it can be very so, hard to okay. find yes. a good defense witness who is not crazy expensive. Hold up. There is also a Mr. Show sketch about expert witnesses, people who are just kind of uh, career expert <laughs> witnesses for trials. And there's like a room of them. And whenever somebody needs one, they just kind of let's say, all right, I need a flag expert. And I need an expert on donkey basketball. All right. And I need a hooker. I mean, I need an expert on hookers. Good. That's going to do it. Thank you. Sir? Hi. Um, have you got anything for me today? Sorry, kid. Oh, full up. Please. Please. I can be an expert on anything. Just give me a chance. I, I work hard. My family is very hungry. I'm very hungry. Well, can you handle ten ways to please your man? <laughs> Come on. well so this is what you get though in trial right so like let's say there's an evidentiary hearing and the state has their doctor and the defense has their doctor the defense (laughs) cross-examines the state's doctor and says how many times have you testified how many times have you found that the person Uh is insane and they're like never right that's how you basically undermine the jury's confidence in their evaluation then the state says to the defense's witness, well, how many times have you testified? How many times have you testified for the defense? And if you're paying somebody, right, that's their job is testifying for the defense. So they're going to be like, it's 50 times. Yeah. How many times have you found that a defendant is not insane? So it's very funny because you basically have these battling doctors, one of whom is spending most of their career on the prosecutorial side, on the state side, and the other that's spending at least the second half of their career on the defense side. Huh. So, Laura, 
I'd love to know because I know you are a fan of a lot of these Grisham adaptation movies. Sure am. I I mean this is a Grisham. This is a two part question. Grisham head. Which is your favorite, just as a movie in general, and which is your favorite, or, or which do you feel is the most, I guess, true to life? Even, granted, they are all very extreme and you know, caricatures of of legal situations. But which do you feel that you've seen is closer to, and you haven't seen The Firm, is that right? I have not seen The Firm. Okay. The one- that's a more, that's a more different- Yeah. Yeah. That's like a psychological, erotic thriller. It's less of a courtroom- More of a mafia thing. Yeah. Then I have no idea what The Firm's about. There's some sexy time Ooh. in there, yeah. but so uh, yeah. so yeah, I'd love to love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, so my favorite, and I think John knows this because I got really mad at him when he did not share my enthusiasm for the Pelican, the Pelican brief. brief. Yeah, I just love the Pelican brief. I thought I, I'm surprised that you didn't say Runaway Jury because no. I feel like you've told me. I love Runaway Jury. Don't get me wrong; okay. it's a great movie, but it's always Pelican Brief for me. Okay, I'll always go back to it. You know. Laura, you and your sister-in-law, my wife, share a not just a passion for Grisham movies, but a, I think a passion for the same ones. Though I think the f- the firm is probably her favorite, but she will watch the firm, it. the Pelican Brief, or Runaway Jury. Any I, any time, I really she enjoyed Runaway does Jury. Does not like. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Me too. She doesn't like the, sh- the uh, Schumachers. She well, she likes the client. She doesn't like a time to a kill. Time I think to it's, kill is it, it, a time to kill is it's it's a bit much. A, the client is the client is really exciting to watch over and over again. I have mixed and it's, feelings it's, about it's the just client. Kind of yeah. yeah. Okay, so why let's let's talk let's talk about that. Well, I mean, well, the witness America's elaborate. sweetheart. I'll allow it. <laughs> America's sweetheart, Julia Roberts. This is my summation. But America's Sweetheart was John Cusack from Runaway Jerry in the movie America's Sweetheart. America's Sweethearts? But so was Julia's Joe. But so was, but, uh, oh, Catherine no, Zeta-Jones? Catherine Zeta-Jones. Yeah. Catherine Zeta-Jones was the other half of the American Sweethearts with John Cusack. Okay, I'm sorry. Julia Roberts was, was the third wheel. Yeah. Right. Right, right, right. Anyhow, America's Real Sweetheart, not from America's Sweetheart, not John Cusack, Julia Roberts. Oliver Platt. Oh, sorry, Julia right. Roberts. Um, she's like amazing to me in that movie. I don't know. I, who knows why anybody feels a certain way about a movie, but watch Pelican Brief when I was in high school, bought it on VHS and then have watched it pretty often since then. So I'd say the one that to me feels the most, um, in some ways plausible is Rainmaker. Oh, okay. Yeah. That was my guess. Rainmaker, we were talking about it before. Great movie. It's a great I, movie. I haven't watched it in, it, a, in a few years, but it's it's great. I, I love it a lot. It's great. But I, I have always felt that that plot, that story is very much, I don't want to say ripped from the headlines because that sounds sensational, yeah. but the, the insurance company screwing over somebody right. who's truly in need and, and terminally ill um, I mean, think about the movie Dark Waters. That aspect. It is the Dark yeah. Waters yeah. for the insurance company. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I I think that Rainmaker is an awesome movie. But that's what I would have guessed is the most. I think the Schumacher ones are the truest to the spirit of like a beach read. Yeah, or a plantation read, as it were, with you, Dan. 
Well, I, I, there was a beach there, but... So uh, th- we're, uh, Dan, uh, Dan read some Grishams on one of our vacations to uh, Georgia as, as children. A plantation? Where we stayed at Judge Noose's house. <laughs> oh, Judge Noose's house. Yes. The, we stayed at Judge Noose's plantation. Yeah. Uh, Not true. Well, no, at, it was, judge yeah. Noose was the judge from A Time to Kill. Ah. His house was a plantation. We did not stay at a plantation. We, wasn't Sea Island, wasn't that property I, but, but formerly we were, a right, plantation? But we were on a resort on a, yeah. We were in the domestic quarters. Anyway. Not in the main house. Anyway, so Laura has been watching a few of the other Schumacher movies with you know, this is we're closing up our July. Wait, before we go to July, yeah. can I oh. just do one thing really quickly? Hit me for all those. Yeah. I'm not gonna hit you. Give me Reggie Love. <laughs> I wanted to hire her. Um, you can get Harry Rex. Oh, god, <laughs> um, he, he makes a lot of dough, sweetheart. All right, go on. Uh, so John Grisham books. What I love about them is how they're legitimately funny. Like they're very funny books, a lot of them, because they have characters mm-hmm. and they have like mix-ups and, you know, they're drenched in Southern sweat. I knew you were going to say sweat. that. I just knew it. Well, you set, you set it up. I did. That I did do that. Drenched. I did. And I, I knew I was setting you up and yet I still got mad about it. Um, let's table that for our divorce talk. Uh, sustained. Sustained. Of a rolled. Um, but one of John Grisham's best books is his nonfiction book, The Innocent Man. And I would just recommend if you want a John Grisham style book, meaning his cadence, his imagination, but a true story that is horrifying, The Innocent Man is an incredible book. Um, and I would read it with. Ordinary Injustice, which is another fabulous nonfiction book, more academic, but also very compelling. Um, and I think some of what you read would would shock you about okay. our justice system. Oh, it shocked man. me. Very depressing. I don't know if I need to know more at this present I, time about the justice system. If it is, give if, me a few I years. Mean, if it is. If it is more than what I have already learned from sources such as the 13th, uh, then y- I-, I don't know that I would be shocked as much as just I- enraged. Yeah. Further enraged. Additionally enraged. So before. So, so yeah. So we're closing up July. Yeah. yeah. Laura has watched a few of the Joel Schumacher movies with me. I. We talked a little bit about cousins earlier, and I mentioned that you could not take your eyes off that screen. I could see that it was a mess in some ways, but I still had to have it. Yeah, it, I that loved movie it. is definitely candy. Yeah, yeah. Sweet, uh, were there sweet some Ted other Danson. ones? Did you watch any? Did you watch Flatliners with me or Lost I, like, Boys or anything? In on Lost Flatliners, boys. I watched Lost Boys with you before because I'd never seen it. Oh, did we watch that one? We watched that one together, and. What a movie, huh? Oh my gosh, what a movie. But yeah. the shirtless saxophone oh. dude. One thing, okay, so Tim Capello, uh, one thing that we... The MVP Something of that July. I did not mention about Tim Capello, and Laura is going to crack up when I bring this up. Sure am. 
Oh, you know what I'm going to talk about? Definitely. So uh, at one point when we were still living in Los Angeles, I was living in the guest house of this uh, wonderful little family. And the, the, the kid, he was four or five at the time, probably five. Precocious kid, Levi, great kid. Uh, he would come into my place and we would, you know, you know, just kind of like hang out for a few minutes before he like got bored and would go off and do his own thing. If my, you know, door was open or whatever. And he, Laura and I were hanging out. This is when Laura and I were like first starting to see each other. And Levi like popped in and we, for some reason, started talking about saxophones and he did not know what a saxophone was. And so I was just like, oh, hold on. <laughs> hold up the clip from the Lost Boys. When John tells this story, I cannot believe I married him. Like, what? You, and you really? we were not engaged at that time. You had an out. You could have gotten an out. out. So <laughs> Levi just like put his hands oh, wow. over his eyes and like left. <laughs> we're still, we were still friends. I it's okay. Love- I love that that is your that is your gut reaction to a four or five year old <laughs> never having seen a saxophone before. Not just like looking up a saxophone or like Clarence Clemens. Right, yeah. I don't know. I'm like, who would who would I, Clarence I'm like, Clemens is a saxophonist that someone my guy. But but you are just like look at this gif of this muscular. Oh no, it wasn't a gif. It was a it was a he full video. Went to yeah. the video. Yeah. <laughs> I can't believe we're married. <laughs> um, so I guess the one of the questions that we talked about from you know from the beginning of July was kind of what would you say is is the film that best represents Joel Schumacher as a director, right? That. Yeah, that I mean, and and maybe not necessarily like, quote unquote, his best, like most like highest quality film. But what is the film that if someone was like, I want to watch a movie that shows me who Joel Schumacher was as a director, what would it what would it be for you? Well, for me, it's really challenging because, yes, there are those themes that come in all of the Joel Schumacher movies. But he does have a range in tone and theme, and there are a lot of cases where he really strays from what you would expect. I mean, Cousins itself, tonally, is extremely different from Falling Down or Flatliners. Like, you know, he yeah. he really shows range, or even something like Flawless. And Flawless? Yeah, Flawless I have yeah. not seen Phantom of the Opera, which it's interesting that that is the kind of first... When you look up Joel Schumacher on IMDb, that's like the first one that comes up for him. That's surprising. I would have thought it would have been the Batman movies. Well, the algorithm for IMDb is pretty mysterious, but I think it has to do with just like what people are looking up most during that time. And I guess Phantom of the Opera, for some reason, people are more interested right now. But yes, I, I agree. And we talked about this earlier where it's like when you see articles about his death, it's like... Batman director Joel Schumacher, Batman and Lost Boys director, those those come up right. A lot. It's always something and Batman. Yeah, Batman comes up a lot, and I think that because those were such high profile movies, 
and because they were riddled, riddled, riddled me this, riddled with, con- oh, riddled with such, such controversies as nipples on the bat suit oh, that, that, you know, it's, they stand out and even though they're not revered as good movies, they're remembered as being like how many movies come out a year that nobody even remembers about like so many maybe not this year for you know coronavirus reasons yep and yep. the oscar goes Bad to sonic the for life will be a <laughs> yep say <laughs> sonic the hedgehog bad boys for life it's a prey which i'm so I'm so grateful that we saw, not that Bad Boys for Life was that terrible, but I'm really grateful that we saw 1917 mm. when we were in Austin, because that is the last movie that I it could have been a, saw a whole lot in the worse theater. For you. So many people saw, like Cats was the last yeah, movie they saw I in the theater. And I'm like, oh, good. All right. My last movie theater experience was 1917 yeah. and, and it was great. So, so anyway, to answer your question, for me, I feel like Flatliners is actually like quintessential Joel Schumacher because even though it is out there in every single way, people have very mixed feelings about it. It is an it's an awesome story, which I know he didn't write it, but it's an awesome story. I feel like the way it's displayed matches the tone and the themes in the movie. It is the the set decoration is completely out there. Um, costumes for that one are a bit of an outlier in that there's nothing that really stands out. I mean, it's very of its time. I object. Okay. I'll allow it. Objection. Objection. Sustained. I would say the red the the red hooded sweatshirt of Billy Mahoney. Oh, yeah. Is, it's okay. It's memorable, it, but it's not flashy in the way that like the uh, the like the Oliver Platts, doesn't he like his 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 prop, his taper like he had a very defined look. Billy Baldwin's skeleton oh, like you right, know, the what Halloween are you, party uh, costume, his Halloween costume. <laughs> yeah. I th- yeah. So I think that, but it's not as prominent as it was in something like uh, The Lost Boys or... The Client. The Client. Well, anyway. Bury the Blade. Yeah, and, but in Flatliners, you do get the crazy automobile. You get lots of crazy scenery. You get really bananas lighting. And I don't know. I, I think that that for me really defines, you know, that's a perfect example of a Joel Schumacher movie. Well, and Flatliners also another feature, uh, I think a, a key feature of Joel Schumacher's signature work is kind of that young ensemble right. that we get in St. Almost Fire and uh, Lost Boys. You name and, it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, mo- you know, most of them like there's there's outliers for that as well. Falling down and flawless are two. Well, Philip Seymour Hoffman, sure, not an, yeah. ol- an an older actor, but you know, Mike pairing Michael Douglas. Um, Did you watch any you of know, Robert Flawless Duvall, with Hershey. me? Uh, it's so good. Have you seen that one before though? No, no, it's really good. So I so just to kind of add to your list for, of for for flatliners, I think it also you know he, he's got that that young cast of, you know, the Oliver Platt and Billy Baldwin kind of who are on their way up. And then Julia Roberts who and Kiefer Sutherland and Kevin Bacon who are, you know, yeah. Main eventers. 
right a-listers so laura what's your your pick your your quintessential i've not seen enough to do that but if i had to like pick a name out of a hat or a movie title out of a hat it would be lost boys lost boys i'm gonna i'm gonna agree with that i'm gonna go with that that's and and what's interesting is before we kind of did this retrospective i would have said flatline oh really for all of for every reason you said, you know, and uh, and the my second pick would have been Lost Boys, but for some reason, Flatliners just like pushed it just a little over the edge for me. What was it about? Uh, oh, Lost and Boys? Kimberly Scott is is in Flatliners, and is she not? Is Kimberly Scott right? Who the actress who she plays Winnie Hicks, grown up Winnie Hicks? Oh yes, yes, yes. Um, oh, we didn't so mention it, which, an, she, an early, and she's in. We didn't mention an early role for uh, Octavia Spencer in um, A Time to Kill. Oh, yeah. yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, but yeah, so I, um, I'm i going to go with The Lost Boys for the added... I think there's a humor. There's that balance of humor and horror in The Lost Boys. And even though like Flatliners to me has that like the got like the the gothic steam and like the poorly lit mm-hmm. med school and Kiefer Sutherland's crazy blue lit apartment. Like the, it, it flatliners has a little bit more of that than the lost boys, but lost boys has that little, has a touch more of camp yeah, to it and humor. And I, I think he does a great where he has your, uh, in casting your, you know, the, the Corey's and, uh, then you've got on that mid-level Kiefer Sutherland, Jamie Gertz, Jason Patrick, Alex, uh, Winter. Alex Winter, pre pre Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, which, by the way, exciting news, Bill and Ted Face the Music is going to be available uh, to stream on September 1st. Yeah. So, which is, will make it the number one, it'll be, it'll win Best Picture. <laughs> so, I'm so excited. But, uh I I think the Lost Boys and then, uh, you know, of course, Edward Herman and Diane Weist and Barnard Hughes. Barnard Hughes is fantastic. And the the chemistry between them all, the humor, the excitement, the the mystery, especially when when the first time that Michael goes and rides with David and jumps off the bridge and eats the eats the maggots. So. Uh, yeah, I, I think for me, I would, I would start with Lost Boys, but I, I think Flatliners would definitely be my next yeah. step. So we're talking about the, the Corys. We've talked about Brad Renfro. I, uh, I, it's a perfect opportunity to talk about our next episode. We are going to be joined by the author of, uh, Child Star. They, the new graphic novel, uh, by our next guest, Brian, quote unquote, Box Brown. Uh, Box has written graphic nonfiction. Uh, he he did one about Andy Kaufman, one about Tetris, the criminalization of weed, and uh, mm-hmm. Andre the Giant. So, oh, yeah. okay, yeah. So, yeah. uh, he's gonna come on to kick off our next month of films, which are going to focus on those child stars, since uh, since Box is the the author of child star and he is going to dan do you want to let us let everybody know what movie we're gonna kick it off with this is box's choice yeah it's heavyweights uh 1995 i am very excited 
Never even heard of it. So talking about child stars, we got Keenan Thompson. Aaron Aaron Schwartz. Aaron, right, Aaron Schwartz, who was also in uh, Mighty Ducks. Aaron, uh, some of the older yeah. uh, actors that we have. Who, I mean, older. They were probably in their 20s at the time. But Ben Stiller, Paul Feig. It's going to be... Tim Blake Nelson. Tim Blake Nelson. Oh, Sean Weiss. Tim Blake Nelson, Sean Weiss Tim Blake Nelson who is really great in Just Mercy. Bringing it back. Okay. He is. I'm just saying. All right. So... We're, no, so I'm excited to see Next it. week, we're going to be joined by Box Brown. I'm really excited. We're going to talk about heavyweights. And Laura, thank you so much for talking some real talk with us. Yes. Um, I know it's a little changed from what we normally do with you. Right. No, it is uh, for sure. And also, there's nothing like speaking off the cuff on a podcast that makes me feel like less of an expert in anything I just said. So Again, encourage anyone who listens and wants an actual, like, pretty nuanced view to do a little bit more research and read some good books out there. That's fair. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And uh, if you have any, uh, if if you have any questions, please email us at ruinedchildhoodspod at gmail dot com. And uh, yeah, follow us ru- at ruined childhoods pod. Th- this court is adjourned. Order and <laughs> good jury. And good (laughs) sustained. Good jury. Good jury, everybody. Good jury. Good jury. (laughs) 